The following podcast is brought to you by Vite Ramen. Use offer code BROKENSILICON to get 10% off tasty, healthy, and easy-to-make ramen orders at the link below. Or go to cdkeyoffers.com and use code BROKENSILICON for 30% off Windows keys and die shrink for 3% off every other key on the website. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and today just I will immediately let my guest introduce himself. Hey, it's uh, Tim from Hardware Unboxed here. Good to, be, good to be on. I think I've done this podcast a couple of times before, but yeah, I always like having a chat with you. So yeah, good to get into it. I mean, yeah, I was thinking, uh, Steve came on a month ago, I believe, and I was thinking I definitely wanted to have you on. As I, if I'm remembering correctly, you actually came on almost exactly a year ago and then a year ago before that. You tend to be on at the beginning around of every year. And, and that typically is because you focus a lot on panel testing, laptop testing compared to Steve. And I think your testing is easily up there with the best on those types oh, of thanks. products. So, but those products are the types of products announced at the beginning of the year. They, yeah. it's, that's when all of the TVs are shown off which half of them don't even come out that year, I find. But that's when they show off the TVs they hope they'll be able to sell you that year. Um, before we move into that, though, I guess since I haven't had you on for the while, I, I just, like, just a kind of canned opening question. Like, what were your thoughts on hardware releases in 2021? Yeah, Steve and I talked about this in a video on the channel uh, at the end of last year. Last year now? Yeah. Jeez, feels like it wasn't that long yes. ago. Um yeah, it was a really bad year, in my opinion. I think, yeah, it was just very boring. Um, a lot of the things that we were expecting to happen were either pretty weak. I mean, not that I was expecting, say, 11th gen mm. CPUs from Intel to be amazing, um, but that certainly wasn't a very exciting launch. And, you know, the, the lack of GPUs and, and AMD CPUs to get excited over was it probably would make it less exciting than I'm expecting this year to be. So... Yeah, it was a bit hard to get motivated for content on the channel and things like that, but I guess it's just the way it is with the world the way it is. So can't be too it can't be too unexpected, I guess. Yeah, it's funny. Well, I was in 2021, it felt like an exciting year to cover for me because there were tons of things to leak for 2022. Yeah. But if we're literally talking about things from 2021, I, I did start to realize this in the past month of like. Oh, yeah. I mean, last year didn't even compare to 2020, though, and you're, if you're talking about actual products that came out. Yeah, and I think even products that, you know, GPUs, for example, I don't think are very exciting this year. For obvious reasons, you can't mm. buy them, so there's a lot of who cares sort of thing there. But even if you could buy the products that were released, a lot of them were things like a 3080 Ti, which, you know, it <laughs> wasn't priced the best. It's not the most exciting product. And some of the products like, for example, the RTX 3050 that we're expecting this month, um, that would have been much a much more exciting product. And that wasn't even released in 2021. So mm. I, I think for that sort of category, yeah, not great. But again, that's just the way it is. And I'm guessing you're expecting this year 
now 2022 to be much more exciting. Though. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe, I don't know, the next year after it probably too. But, you know, we've already had one product announced that was one of those like list of 10 things. And that's the 5800 X3D. I thought, you know, I was like looking through the script of things we could talk about. I thought I'd actually start with this one because I'm not sure it really leads into anything else we're going to talk about. So just kind of get it out of the way. The 5800 X3D, did it surprise you they didn't show a full lineup? Uh, was it what you were expecting? I mean, wh what do you think about it? Yeah, I was expecting more than one CPU. I think that's pretty fair to say. I don't think I was expecting you know a ton of CPUs, probably not the four that we've got currently from the 5000 series, you know, the non-APU mm. models. So I was probably expecting like a 5950 X3D being the other option. So having the eight cores and the 16 core models just to give you know the buyers a choice you know i think lacking that 16 core model is a bit strange for people that want to do high-end gaming on their system but also production work it's it, it is a very versatile cpu so not having that option especially considering the prices they could probably sell it at was a bit mm. strange but if they're marketing it purely as a cpu for gamers then the eight core model kind of is a perfectly fine CPU for gaming. Like you don't really need the 12 or 16 core models for gaming. The additional performance you get there is not particularly amazing. So I guess if they were going to launch one CPU, this CPU would make the most sense. <laughs> but yeah, it certainly was a bit strange not to see all the models. I was um, thinking about this uh, the other day too. I realized that I, I would actually make the argument that I'm not even sure the 5900X3D makes sense. I mean, if you think about what they're doing here, they're taking a yield of literally the same Zen 3 chips they've been making for a while, and they're going, are these ones good enough to give a 15% boost? I don't know why you'd waste any six-core chips on that, right? Yeah. And so then it's but then it becomes this awkward thing of, so what do they do? Do they do a full 6000 series and they just have like a, 6900 but not xt because it would be worse than the uh, at a lot of tasks than the eight core one that has vcash and and for me actually the biggest surprise was spring that for me was the one because I, I wasn't sure like are they going to do a full lineup and try to get it out in january are they going to just do a few models and put that next to it but when i saw spring i was like oh that's why they're only launching one model i did not see that late of a release coming yeah it seems like a a very stopgap option between Zen 3 and Zen 4. Um, I guess, you know, the, the 12th gen lineup has shaken up a few things. Obviously, this was planned for some time. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's not 100% a response because it's planned. But, you know, I, I think they need to have something out to sort of bridge that gap until we see Zen 4 much later in the year. They can't really go what would it be like 18 months without anything or more than that. It would be like, yeah, over two years, actually. So having something... In the meantime, I guess, was their thinking here. And yeah, I think the late release, not sure what to think about that. I guess it depends, you know, how, are they sending these into servers? Is that kind of their main goal for these 3D stack chips? Which I, I, I think it, it is. So if this is kind of just a, a last resort sort of, hey, you know, we did a, sort of announce this for gaming. Um, our, you know, our supply is not great. So we're going to have to put like the majority of these into servers. Um, that, that's kind of what it feels like to me at the moment. And I, I would expect most of the focus would be more on Zen 4 at the end of the year. Well, and I also thought about this recently. If there was one CPU in their lineup that just does feel very out of place with its pricing, it 
is the 5800X. But I, yep. I, I, this leads to a reader mail here. Ah, Trini writes in, Hi, Tom and Tim. With Tom's whisper catching ability in Tim's magic ball, any idea where the cost of the 5800X3D may fall? If this is going to beat a 12900K in gaming only, I'm, it's probably going to be trading blows. Is it going to be priced reasonably or is it going to be better if my money goes elsewhere? I'm seriously looking to upgrade my 2700X for something faster for gaming. Yes, so is the co-host of Broken <laughs> Silicon, Dan. Yeah, I think... We've seen the XT models in the 3000 series before launch at the same price as the, you know, the existing models. Uh, obviously, this is a bit more than just an XT model, so it's hard mm-hmm. to say what I think the pricing would be. If I had to guess, probably the same price as the 5800X today because it is a very overpriced CPU. It's not great value. And, you know, at $400 is probably going to be, you know, that would come in a lot cheaper than the 12900K, but there's also the 12700K to compete mm-hmm. with as well, which is still a very capable gaming processor that's, you know, gets very close to the 12900K. So I think that's probably what they would do and then maybe lower the pricing of the rest of the lineup or just the 5800X. I think most of the lineup does need quite a price correction. They're, all the products are probably too expensive at the moment. So... That's probably what I would expect, but it's not going to be a super affordable bang for buck cost per frame sort of product. I wouldn't have thought it'll be for the the high end builds sort of trying to capture that market. Well, so that's kind of what I'm thinking about, too. Like this doesn't make sense to launch in the existing pricing structure unless it's five hundred dollars. And the only reason they would do that, in my opinion, is if they they, they truly will get Zen 4 out a little sooner than we expect. And from their perspective, they're going to be sending not that many of these to gamers. So if they're only shipping, if this is only some kind of like limited, you know, like what was it called? The i7-8086K launch, then I, it could be 500 because they don't even care if that many people buy it. But if they really plan to do a full lineup, I think they just need to completely restructure the pricing of the entire lineup with it. I mean, the i5 made, in my opinion, a mockery of the 5800X where it was. So I don't even... It's almost to the point where you would say this should be 350 and the 5800X should be 300 or 250 and then the 5600X should be below that. I mean, what is it? We know there's i3s coming out that, based on my math, should a game about as well as a 5600X for half the price. D- do you think AMD is going to drop the price of their lineup? And where do you think it's going to go? Um, well, it's a really hard one because clearly the sales for Zen 3 are still very good. So there's Mm -hmm. not a ton of incentive. I wouldn't have thought to drop pricing significantly. Um, But at the same time, maybe some of the reason why people are still opting for Zen 3 over 12th gen has been issues around DDR5 motherboard pricing and it being a very new generation from Intel. So potentially by the time this product comes out in the spring, which for me is not the spring, anyway, Mm -hmm. um, by the time the product comes out, then maybe Intel will be like actually not just competing in reviews, but competing in terms of market share and sales as well, which would Mm -hmm. force, I think, a pretty significant price correction. Like we've sort of been talking about, these products have been available for some time now and haven't really dropped in price at all. Uh, where we would normally and it's the same them. node Zen Two used. I mean, yeah. AMD is making a killing on on the margins on these things. Yeah, absolutely. So I think if we see the sales fall off on Zen Three, and we start to see people who are building new systems opting for Intel instead and going for the full Z six ninety or B six sixty platforms and that sort of thing, um, then I think we will see 
a price drop. I'm not sure whether a 5600X would get below $200, but there's certainly mm. at least $100 of, of price room there to move the stack down, just take every product, drop it by $100. And to me, I think that would make more sense from a competitive standpoint than releasing more X3D products because it's not that Zen 3D mm. is a bad performing chip or anything. It's just that it's too expensive and reducing the price would still make them very competitive and they wouldn't need to bother releasing more chips. So I guess that's my thoughts there. Yeah, I, I it's just, if it was going to be truly competitive, assuming Intel fleshes out their lineup, there's still the aggressiveness I think they'd have to have. I think the 5950X would should justifiably be 700 or less. Yep. The, I mean, the 5950X, the 5900X, I mean, I don't know. I, I honestly, at least over here in America at Micro Center over b- Christmas break, the 12700K was going for like $330. I think someone I knew got one for 300 I don't even know how you compete with that. I, I think the 5900X then maybe should be 400 really? Or, yeah. or do you disagree? No, like, that's, like that's how drastic this needs to be. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the Zen 3 parts as well were more expensive than the the previous lineup, and we were missing parts in that lineup. Like, there's no 5600 non-X, as an mm. example. So, and they can always launch yeah, it. Yeah, they, just... they could always launch it. But, yeah, I think I think $100 of pricing correction for most of the parts, if not more, would have to be required if they wanted to be competitive. But, again, if they're still selling lots of products, there's no incentive for them to do that. So, yeah, I guess for budget gamers, Intel might be the way to go for some time. And, and I'm refreshing AMD.com here. I guess the 5950X and the 5800X are back in stock. No surprise. But the 5900X at 550 is out of stock, which I, I think is almost insane when you yeah. can get the i7 for almost half the price. Well, not half, but two-thirds the price. And the 5600X at $300 from their websites out of stock. And I remember doing a video on that in December and going, yeah, I don't think they're going to drop the price because i just think it's going to sell out no matter what guys yeah and i think they've they've obviously built this all up with their am4 platform being a key selling point you know lots of people have these am4 boards which makes the switch over Mm -hmm. to intel much more difficult so people are just looking for cheap and easy upgrades like a 5900x so yeah that's going to play into it a bit and amd's got that advantage for them going so again whether they drop pricing or not it may not even be required yeah, and I think that's what they were telegraphing too. Obvious, and it's funny because when they showed off the 5800X3, there were so many people online asking immediately, well, wait, are they going to reveal the other ones eventually? And I'm like, no, they showed Zen 4. Like, they're not going to show the next gen flagship and then also, and make you salivate over it and then go, oh, also another flagship's coming out before it. Like, yeah. I think that Zen 4 showcase was them saying, that is it, guys. Um did the Zen 4 presentation impress you? I mean, they showed it at 5 gigahertz all cores. Yeah, I mean, yes, it, it was impressive. I think with these sort of very early announcements, it's hard to make any serious calls on it because we just haven't seen enough of it mm-hmm. yet. I think it was impressive from a standpoint of AMD showing off this early, which I don't think I was really expecting if it's going to be more of a late mm-hmm. 2022 launch. Um, you know, the five gigahertz all core thing, again, we'd have to wait and see how that plays out in products. You know, what's the power consumption? How long can they sustain that for? What's the performance? There's there's a lot of questions there, but certainly hitting five gigahertz is kind of a milestone for them. We obviously see that with the new Zen 3 plus APUs for the mobile side as well. So yeah, I mean, 
they always try and do these nice little teasers and stuff like that. So, but for me, I guess I'm I'm still waiting to see sort of the full lineup, see what the pricing's like, see what the performance is like, which I'm not expecting for some time. Yeah, I mean, I I would say the fact that they actually showed it at all though and said some things that we'll be able to fact check them on when it comes to boost clocks tells me that this isn't a November launch. This is probably before that. This to me feels like a September launch again this year. Yeah, I wouldn't have any <laughs> I wouldn't have any idea on that. I, I'm not the best person to ask for that. But yeah, if they've got silicon working at the moment, then yeah, I, I probably would expect it to be a bit earlier. But then, you know, there's always the questions of what are they doing on the server side? How many of these chips are they going to try to put into there before bothering launching on the desktop, which may delay it a little bit. So Mm. I'm not sure. But again, you know, Zen 3 has been on the market for a long time. So really, this should be coming any day now on a normal sort of CPU release cadence. But it's been obviously a bit longer than that. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if it was earlier. But yeah, I just don't know. Well, let's move on then to some of the monitor tech. So let me see here. Jareth Pertz writes in and he says, longtime listener, first time caller. How do you feel about the Samsung QD OLED panels coming to the market in 2022? Will they unseat the W OLED panels from LG or they be a bust like 3D monitors were in 2010s? I don't know that I compare them to that, but I don't know. What do you think? No, definitely not a bust like 3D monitors. I think that was kind of a technology that wasn't thought out very well to how people would actually use it. Whereas QD OLED... I think that should just be a natural progression of the OLED technology that we've seen for for many years now. So hopefully it won't be like that. Uh, I guess the question compared to W OLED isn't so much on the technology standpoint. I think we sort of know what QD OLED is going to bring. It's going to be similar to existing OLED, but with many advantages. I guess the question is more unseating W OLED is going to be in the price. Um, W OLED for TVs is pretty affordable. Like you can buy some, I think in the U over in the U S you can get them for like a thousand dollars on sale, which is pretty good. Uh, and I don't expect the Samsung QD OLED to come in at that sort of pricing level. So yeah, but again, I guess it, it's going to bring some more competition to the market, actually give people options for the first time, which is really what I think that generation is going to be about with the QD OLED stuff, just actually giving people a non-crappy HDR option. So I'm pretty excited. Right. And I think I'm actually going to just skip ahead and rapid read a couple of these questions to move forward with this whole QD OLED conversation. So like, first of all, actually, I had an old TV crap out on me. uh, God, when was that? It's probably already two months ago. And I got the LG G1. Uh, TV, which is pretty much their highest end one, like even above, what is it, the C1. And it's actually funny. I think I was going to get it for like two grand. And then they, they like delayed it a week more than they said they would deliver it. And then the price dropped on Amazon before they delivered it. And then I told them, well, I mean, I don't want it anymore <laughs> then unless you drop this price. And so then I ended up getting it for like $1,700, which a 55 inch the the newest panel with supposedly right a little more brightness better greens is what they say uh better even better response times than the other ones like that's at $1700 for a 55 inch and a guy in PA81 just writes and he says LG just announced a 42 inch OLED i think it's conceivable this will be 1 to 1200 1000 to 1200 dollars um this is a 42 inch this is getting to where you can put it on your desk and and I see a lot of people like Matthews Duke asking questions like, 
you know, why aren't people talking about QD OLED more? From the specs, it seems to blow away any display tech we currently have with incredible, accurate, and vibrant colors. It features real-time sticking compensation, so burn-in shouldn't be should be less of a problem. There's already a 1440p ultra-wide gaming monitor prototype from Alienware being shown off. It's probably going to be expensive, but how do you think this is going to stack up in the next couple of years? I'm just like kind of getting all of this information out there because I have to say, notice the Alienware showed off a prototype. Notice Samsung said they will sell TVs this year. What does that mean? Like Sony and Samsung and, you know, LEG used to do this. They don't usually as much anymore. When they show a new tech, yeah, they sell something that year. It's usually like a $30,000, you know, TV that only like the mega rich can buy. And like, you need a contract just to get it installed. Like, that's my problem is when you get excited about any of these new techs is, I don't really expect this to be a real product this year. Do you disagree with me? At least this is, maybe I'm jaded. This is what I expect out of every new TV shown off by these manufacturers. Yeah, I think CES is pretty ripe with those sorts of things. Uh, we've seen monitors a lot that are sort of announced at CES and they may not come out for one or two years. That's that's pr pretty common. Uh, Asus tends to do that a lot. Uh, so mm -hmm. it wouldn't surprise me if these products are sort of a later release. And, and, and you know, there's... A lot of considerations with this, like what are the yields going to be like for the QD OLED panels? I think they're also using G-Sync Ultimate uh, chips in them, uh, at least the Alienware mm. model does, which, you know, are, is NVIDIA going to release a new generation of G-Sync Ultimate because the current ones don't support HDMI 2.1 as an example? That could delay these sorts of things mm. further. So it, it seems very much to be a launch to sort of say, hey, we're sort of releasing these products, these are coming, as sort of a response to an increasing rise of HDR monitors, which I'm expecting to see throughout most of this year. So I, I guess from that sense, yeah, I'm not 100% sure whether they'll come this year. And even if they did come, they will be very expensive. There's no doubt about that. They will be very expensive. And so I wouldn't expect them to compete very well with the 42-inch OLED, which, yeah, it's probably going to launch at what, like 50? launch at $1,500 US and be cheaper than that within six months. That Samsung mm -hmm. and Alienware products are, yeah, $2,000 plus. I, I don't really know what they're going to cost for sure, but that's sort of what I'd be expecting, if not more. Right. And and I didn't see any questions about micro LED, which is funny because I remember at CES last year, all anyone was talking about was micro LED and how that's going to make OLED obsolete overnight. Here we are a year later, guys, no products. And I said that, guys, I don't think this, this is going to be vaporware for four years. Yeah. Um, and, and people will be good to remember that LG was showing off OLED TVs in 2012, I think. And they didn't really have a product until 2016. So I just, it, it's not that I don't think like, yeah, look at the specs. It's going to be better than the OLED panels we have now. Of course it is. It's new technology. But I just don't see it as something you're going to be able to... I will be very surprised if the 55-inch QD OLED from Samsung comes out by September this year and it costs less than 4000 Like, that will surprise me, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely expect it to be a high-end release. So... Again, I'm not super familiar with TV pricing. So if the top end of TVs is around that price, that's probably where I would expect it to be. You know, they're going to do all that. It doesn't really matter, I guess, how much it costs to actually make. It's going to be mm. how much marketing BS they can get mm. away with in terms of saying that this is the best type of TV to buy. And I think your know, LG's benefited a lot from having this technology on the market for so many years now that they can optimize mm -hmm. it, make it cheaper, and make it really competitive with 
the current LCD tech. Whereas this, yeah, it's it's, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be late-ish, I would think. And yeah, it, kind of like 8K TVs. I kind of see it similar to that where, you know, you release a product onto the market where it's kind of, hey, we can do this now, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be a viable option for you to buy for some time. Like if it's only marginally better than W OLED and it costs four times as much, then you just wouldn't buy it. So, but again, you know, I always like to see advancements in technology. You don't want to see them sitting around saying, hey, we're not, no. we're not going to release this $5,000 TV because it's too expensive. I still want to see them release it. But for most customers, it still might be quite expensive. But I'm I'm keen to check it out because this is the sort of product that you know, I, especially the Samsung Ultrawides, I use an Ultrawide every day. So for me, a 1440p Ultrawide that isn't LCD based uh, is something that I would consider using every day. So that's something that, yeah, I'm pretty keen on. I, I really hope it comes out this year. Well, and and it's worth pointing out that I do feel like LG, and I'm sure they're working on the next step for OLED from their end of the market, but it does feel like, yeah, my G1, I, it, it was noticeably better than the previous OLED I had. Yeah. yeah. But it wasn't like twice as good. It feels like they are kind of just, treading water a little bit because they know they have the best panel and they did it and they've refined it like so i i do think they need competition and they do need someone else making oled panels because they're basically selling them to sony and everybody else and just reaping all the benefits of that um i i guess i i don't know i'm actually asking you how much better is quantum dot oled i've never had burning issues with any oled product i've used period like, I'll yep. just be honest, most of them you don't have for 10 years, but uh, the, and, and I would, you know, because I recommend OLED so much, I would even like leave my TV on with like, whatever, some menu just to see if it would burn. Cause I feel like a little bit of an obligation to not go easy on it. So that if it, I would hope I get burned in before my fans do. Um, and I haven't had it yet, like, but I haven't used this for like a desktop monitor that I will leave sitting here with a web browser on for a day straight sometimes just because I forget it's on. Do you think quantum.oled is going to handle burn into the degree that it won't be an issue on desktop? Because I do have my reservations about if you were to use like an LG as an all day kind of office desktop monitor. And, and do you think it will really have noticeably better color and everything that isn't like the marginal things LG brings every year? Yeah, a couple of questions there. I think on the burn inside of things, it's not like the technology inherently won't burn in. So it's not like an LCD with a constant mm. backlight where th- there's no major way where that product is going to burn in. It, it still is OLED technology where each pixel is self-emitting. The main advantages to QD OLED is changing the way that each of the different colors is made. Instead of filtering mm. constant... So in a W OLED, for example, each OLED, the actual emitter, is producing the same white color and then they're being filtered into the red, green, blue, and white that you see in the pixel structure. QD OLED changes that by emitting blue light directly from each of the individual pixel, sub-pixels and then the quantum dots change those into red, green, and well, blue, sorry, mm. already the blue one. So th- the way that's supposed to improve burn-in is that the each pixel works less. So because it doesn't need to be filtered and it's more of a direct sort of path out of the light emitter, I guess, uh, it works less. So it requires less voltage, less power, so it can theoretically last longer before burning in. But it still should burn in at some point, which I guess is the question that I'm sort of wondering... Mm. How much less fast yeah, how, or whatever. Like if you're seeing a, your LG, 
let's say you've bought one of the 48-inch WOLED panels and you're burning it in after a year, which is maybe going to happen if you do desktop use. I, again, I, like you, I haven't seen it with my TV for mm-hmm. content consumption. So I don't think burning is that much of an issue for that use case. But for a desktop, if it's burning in after a year and QD OLED improves that to two years and then you're spending $4,000 on your monitor or whatever, is that acceptable or is it going to bring it out to three years, four years, which is probably more of a mm-hmm. reasonable lifespan for that sort of price. Those are sort of the questions I still have over burning. You know, if they could say, hey, this is fully burn-in proof, like we don't, the, the technology would be explainable in a way where it doesn't burn in, I'd be like, yeah, okay, that, that's going to be really good. But from a tech perspective, there's still that risk there. So that's something that people are going to need to assess over time. But I think Alienware was supposedly going to offer like a three-year burn-in warranty, which certainly gives you at least some uh, confidence. That's the um, question I was going to have because my one of the reasons I got the G1 over the C1 is it came with a like just as they it's like a complete no-nonsense five-year warranty. And they're like, no, we're sure these don't burn in for most people anymore. So if, you, if, if, they're, if they can offer you something like that and knowing more people will use this for desktop, then I think it's a non-issue completely. Yeah, I think warranties are going to be a really big thing for the OLED generation of monitors. Uh, people are really going to mm. be looking into what are the sort of, sort of like your dead pixel policies that we've seen for LCD over many, many years now. That's always a thing that people look at. I think burn-in policies are going to be big for that. And three years plus is what I think would be acceptable, especially if you're spending a lot of money. Uh and then, of course, I think the other part of your question was on the color performance and those sort of things. It, it Again, the way that it works, it should be better. You're sort of changing the way it's filtering the, the pixels. So it, it just should be better. I think they're quoting up to 80% plus uh, Rec 2020 coverage, which would be 10, 10 percentage points higher than what we see from LG's W OLED. So if those specs are accurate, then it, sh- it should be much more vibrant and giving you giving HDR content creators more room to use those really insane parts of the color spectrum. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there should be advantages there, but more than the colors for me should be the brightness aspect. WOLED just doesn't mm-hmm. get bright enough for desktop use, in my opinion. Um, the automatic brightness limiters and things like that are very annoying. Um, so if they can remove that, then that's going to be a really big selling point for that sort of technology for monitors. Not having to run it at 100 nits, not having to worry about automatic brightness limiters changing the brightness as you change window sizes mm. for desktop use. That, yeah, that's just a killer for me. And having that technology that I think they were quoting 250 nits full, um, full screen white window for the new 1440p okay. ultra-wide monitors. And I think 200 nits for the TV versions, which again is low compared to LCDs, but usable and shouldn't require as much automatic brightness limiting features. So that's what I'd be hoping for there. And then again, I guess for burnout, I was just thinking just briefly, I was talking to you just then that Mm -hmm. we've seen laptops use OLED panels for a little bit now that are not W OLED. They're the different Samsung or the Mm -hmm. J OLED OLEDs. I think they're Samsung OLEDs and they supposedly are better for burn-in than W OLED as well already without using QD OLED tech. At least that's what some laptop manufacturers are sort of saying. So, yeah, I think we see advancements with burn-in all the time. Um, and if we, yeah, if laptops are suitable for OLEDs right now, then the next generation of QD OLED monitors should be as well. Yeah, I think the question just is if we're already to what I'm about to say, if we're about to be this thing where it's like, look, you're always going to have annoying people in the comments saying, well, I'm never getting OLED because it will 
burn in. This is going to be like the people that said, I'm never getting an SSD because mm. it can only be written to so many times. And it's like yeah, that SSD is going to outlast any reasonable HDD just because it's an inherently more reliable, better technology that you're not going to write a thousand terabytes to in its lifetime, my friend. But uh, the question is, is if in practice it gets to that crossover point yeah. like SSDs did pretty quickly, actually, where they were in practice no less reliable. Yeah. And I think there's going to be some issues with these OLED monitors when they first come out and that the more you spend on a product, the longer you're going to expect it to last for. So if there's question marks around burn-in, you're mm. spending a lot of money and you're expecting it to last for five, six, seven years, which, again, if you're spending $3,000 plus on a product, I think it's reasonable to expect it to last for yes. five years or more then you know that's going to be an issue for some people. But this exact same level of burn-in might be fine if that product only costs $1,000 or less than $1,000, which may happen over time as that technology gets cheaper. So, yeah, there's so many questions here. There's going to be very interesting once people start testing these things for burn-in and seeing what the manufacturer ratings are. And certainly the price is going to play a big part in whether that burn-in level is acceptable or not. Well, and I think a lot of people forget that many times the panel is the least of your concerns. Like much like in a graphics card, the die breaking is often the least of your concerns. You got to worry about the capacitors and a monitor and the power supply, yeah. the board. There are so many other things that are probably going to break long before that panel is going to break that I think people kind of miss. Like it, the panel didn't break on that OLED TV I had. The Clearly the board fried. Like I looked into it and it's like, well, I guess there's nothing I can do that. Yeah, that's that sucks, <laughs> you know, um, but let me move on to a question here from Root Knight. Alienware announced that this new revolutionary QD OLED monitor is somehow going to manage to still not have fully featured HDMI 2.1 ports on it. If you had to justify such a move on such a high end product, what would your explanation be, Tim? Uh, well, if I was trying to justify it, I wouldn't because it's not justifiable in my opinion. <laughs> it really should have HDMI 2.1 to because it's required for that uh, 175 hertz refresh rate. The actual reason would be because it's a G-Sync Ultimate monitor using NVIDIA's uh, G-Sync mm. Ultimate scaler. They can't do HDMI 2.1 on them yet, so you're kind of stuck with HDMI 2.0. And we saw that with, well, now, now it's been renamed to HDMI 2.1, but you know what I mean, HDMI 2.0, the old spec. Uh, mm -hmm. We've already seen that with the ASUS ROG Swift PG32 UQX. That was their high-end mini LED backlight HDR monitor for desktop use. 4K, 144 hertz, had DisplayPort, obviously, so you could use that, but the HDMI port was 2.0. Again, it's because it was a G-Sync Ultimate monitor. So that would be the reasoning there. I think NVIDIA should release an update there as soon as they possibly can. HDMI 2.1 has been available for well over a year now in functional products and you know, TVs going before to, like, before a year ago. So... Yeah, I don't think it's really justifiable from like a reviewing standpoint. If I was looking at the product, it doesn't have HDMI 2.0, 2.1. I'd say that's not justifiable. But there are some technical reasons there that hopefully they can resolve by the time the product is actually launched, especially if it's going to be towards the end of this year or next year. Now, so my main question then is, because I've seen a lot of discussion about this online. I haven't looked into it a ton about this whole HDMI 2.1 being renamed, uh, these shenanigans. That monitor you mentioned with a fake 2.1 port, can it still drive 4K 144 hertz HDR through the two, you know, I put it in quotes, 2.1 port, or is it limited to 60? Because that's what HDMI 2.0 is limited to. 
Yeah, I guess if you're talking about the PG-30 UQX or the the, mm-hmm. the fake one that was announced, if you're talking about the PG-30 UQX, it still can do 4K HDR on it, but it will just be limited to 60 hertz unless you want to crazily... Despite being the... marketed as a 4K 144 hertz monitor? Yes. I mean, yeah. Ah. I mean, it can do 4K 144 hertz technically because it does have DisplayPort 1.4 with DSC. So if you've got, you know... A modern okay. GPU, it can still do it, but I think if you're buying like a 4K high refresh monitor these days and it does HDR, you might want to use that with an Xbox or a PlayStation, which you're going to need yes. HDMI for that sort of console. Especially if you, like it's a three thousand dollar monitor, like you expect it to last for some time. Not having a modern port just is not really justifiable. So, you know, they could technically now advertise that as an HDMI 2.1 port, which is very frustrating because I think that's just a load of crap. But, you know, it's what can you do? Standards bodies just playing funny all the time with those sorts of things, unfortunately. Well, and I wasn't sure about that because there's been a lot of... I remember LG on some of their TVs had HDMI 2.1 ports. And I thought it was very cool that they just said, hey, we're just going to always have all 2.1. We're not doing this thing or two of them aren't high enough spec for you. Don't worry about which port you plug it in. It works. But I believe what is it? The top 2.1 is like 48 gigabit per second and theirs were only 40 if I remember correctly. And I think that argument was a little silly most of the time though because there was almost no situation where you needed the full 2.1 bandwidth. That was why I asked that question about the monitors. I wonder if they're renaming allowing them to call effectively 2.0 or sub, should I say, 2.1 ports a 2.1 because, well, they don't need the full 2.1 bandwidth to drive their monitor. But what you're saying is they they can't drive the panel. Like, I would understand if, because these are, like, HDMI was behind DisplayPort in the resolutions and frame rates it could support by a huge margin for years. Then out of nowhere, they just snap their fingers and here's this new spec that just blows DisplayPort out of the water. But my understanding is it was way more expensive to implement. Like they kind of brute forced it. So I guess I was just wondering if they were trying to make it so that really you can't put a port on here that can't that doesn't need more than it costs to put in it. But that doesn't yeah. that doesn't sound like that's what you're saying. I could understand if they were okay with that. I think what some of what you're saying is accurate with which is going to be the case for some types of monitors. Like, for example, if you had a 1080p 144 hertz monitor, it doesn't really need HDMI 2.1 at all. HDMI 2.0 is fine. And I guess, you know, if they want to say this is HDMI 2.1, having HDMI 2.1 on that monitor would make absolutely no difference to the product at all because Mm -hmm. 1080p 144, it just works fine, HDMI 2.0. So while I would prefer that product to still be advertised as 2.0 over 2.1, if they said it was 2.1, it'd be pretty inconsequential. The issue is is when it comes to those higher spec monitors like the PG30 QX. And to be clear, that monitor was not advertised with HDMI 2.1 at all. It was a standard HDMI 2.0 monitor, no false advertising, so no issues there. But I think the concern with this renaming of the specs is that the future of monitors like this next 2022 wave could start to advertise that their 4K 144Hz monitors have HDMI 2.1 and then it turns out there's still just HDMI 2.0 ports that can't run the monitor at the full spec. So we haven't seen actual examples of that occurring yet in the real world, but again, they're sort of saying that that's allowed and if they say it's allowed, then you know, usually manufacturers will start to exploit that. So potentially that's what we'll start to see. Hopefully not, but 
Yeah, I think with the LG TVs, for example, you know, the 40 gigabits per second, I agree, that was overblown. They didn't really need the extra 8 gigabits per second for 4K 120 hertz. It didn't really make too much of a difference. So that, yeah, I think in those circumstances, the the actual bandwidth used, again, there's so much nuance here because it's like mm-hmm. the HDMI spec at 48 gigabits per second is going to be required for some things, but is it acceptable to use a lower bandwidth and still call that the same port, even though it may only be required? You know, how many of the optional features like supporting variable refresh rates are required to name it HDMI 2.1? Yeah, we're just going to have to be on the lookout for things that are obviously dodgy, I think, when there's so many different ways that something could be named that. Right, because my only question is, can the HDMI port maximize the the screen this is being advertised yeah. as being. I think that's fair. And when I look at, and I've, I'll put a link in the description for those listening, I'm looking at a spec here. And, and I know there's a lot of nuances to the, you know, transmission bit rate and like what's actually required for each resolution. But like HDMI 2.0B has, what does it say? 18 gigabit per second. 2.1 goes up to 48. So theoretically for 144 hertz 4K, you don't need 48. I think what I'm seeing here is you need 43.2. So what if it was like, 10% cheaper for them to put in a port that couldn't do the full thing but can do 4K 144. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, but if fine. there's any time they call it 2.1 and then you can't run it past 60 hertz, uh, that's absurd. Yeah, like, yeah and- absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a very fair assessment of of the situation. I, I don't expect monitor manufacturers to sit there putting 48 gigabits per second ports in monitors that don't require yeah. it. If it costs them a, a ton to implement, they have to use expensive scalers, whatever. Yeah, I'm not expecting them to do that, but certainly what I'll be looking for is, you know, is that, yeah, like you say, can the monitor be run without chroma subsampling or other garbage at its full specifications that it stated? And that's, that's what it's got to have to do. Today's video is brought to you by cdkoffer.com. Whether you're looking to get good deals on PlayStation, Microsoft Office Professional, or both Windows 10 and Windows 11 operating systems, cdkoffer.com has you covered. CDKey is a long-term sponsor of Moore's Laws Dead, and that's because they have been consistently providing me and Moore's Laws Dead's fans with a service that I think PC gaming just needs reasonable operating system and Microsoft Word prices. We all have to use these products and we don't need to overpay for them if you use cdkeyoffer.com. And you know what? I know I will be using these products later this year for a new Raptor Lake or Zen 4 system most likely. And I will do so knowing that, well, they're all legitimate keys and they are going to be delivered to me quickly and promptly when I buy them. Don't waste any more money than you need to this year. Use the link in the description or on screen to go to cdkeyoffer.com. And when you're there, whatever you decide to buy, make sure you use one of these offer codes. Broken Silicon gets you 30% off all Windows software, and Dietring gets you 3% off anything else on the website. And this really does help the channel. It helps you save money. Use these offer codes. Use the link. Go to cdkeyoffer.com today. All right, so then let me move on to a different panel tech that I think will probably be more prevalent this year than QDO LED. Melodic Warrior writes, and he says, Welcome back, Tim. In regards to mini LED tech, I had the pleasure of using such a monitor towards the beginning of last year. When I was testing it, I could not help but notice that motion blur was far improved over OLED and IPS panels that I had used prior to this. Do you think that mini LED could be a popular tech for competitive and esports players in the near future when costs come down? Interesting question, because I guess if right now, if I was thinking of what is one of the advantages of mini LED, it's mostly going to be for Mm. HDR. 
and HDR and sort of visual qualities not necessarily the same priorities as what esports gamers would have in terms of sort of your response times, input lag, refresh rate. So you know, there's no reason why a mini LED panel couldn't be used for esports. The challenge is there with mini LED is that there's two elements that are changing in the panel each time you do a transition. There's both the LCD layer changing the crystals that we normally see. And then as well, the backlight has to change yeah, at the same time. So syncing those two things up, we see some odd behavior at times with those monitors. Like if the backlight is slightly too early compared to the liquid crystal layer, then it can it can lengthen the amount of time that it takes to transition, which is going to make um, the response time performance, the motion performance worse. That's not usually the case. A lot of these monitors still have perfectly fine performance with the mini LED backlight enabled, but that's a challenge if you're making an esports monitor with a higher refresh rate. You're going to need to do a lot of work to sync those two things up properly. Mm-hmm. But then for esports, you could just disable the mini LED backlight, run it as a normal LCD monitor, and get the high performance. If you know if they put a high performance LCD in there, that should still work fine, and I think would be pretty suitable for an esports monitor and give you the benefits of HDR outside of esports games. Um, but then, you know, is the tech going to be ready for 240 hertz displays anytime soon? I know they've announced some monitors. It depends how long they take to mm-hmm. come out to the market, I guess. Right, because what I've always said to people that I ask on Broken Silicon is, from my perspective, when it comes to these pie-in-the-sky things like newer OLEDs, like quantum dot OLED, and then micro LED, which is supposed to which was supposed to kill OLED two years ago. It's not even out yet. Like it, all of those ones, it's like, I, yeah, I, I'm not saying it's not better than OLED. I'm just saying, let me know when it's out at the same price and yeah. then I'll buy it. And I, I, it's all a matter of guessing when it's even coming out for me when it comes to the newer stuff. When it comes to mini LED, it's just more dimming zones, but like a lot more dimming zones yeah. than what we're used to. And so... It's, but it's never going to be as good as what you would think of as a perfect OLED or micro LED. It's never, it's not as good. It can't have as low of a response time because in, inherently like OLED can be instant, you know, and it's never going to have as good as contrast unless you get to per pixel dimming zones and it never will. For me, mini LED is always going to be, when is it half the price of OLED to the point where it's good enough for most people? It looks like OLED to most people. But, what ViewSonic announced a $2,500 one that's 4K 144. And I'm aware MSI announced a 300 Hertz 1440p one, which is interesting to me, that idea of a 300 Hertz 1440p monitor. And Samsung announced a 240 Hertz 4K one with HDR 2000. All of that sounds great. No prices here, though. As far as I can tell, every mini LED product is like triple the price of OLED. Yeah, that, that's been an issue. I think it's maybe a bit of trying to cash in on the monitor market and cashed up gamers because on the TV side, you can get mini Mm -hmm. LED panels with lots of backlight dimming zones for very competitive pricing with OLED panels. You know, Samsung's TVs, the high-end ones are all mini LED. So, yeah, using, yeah, I think there's been a bit of a lag there in terms of the pricing for monitors. Um, Of course, there are some differences in density between a TV versus a monitor. You do have to make Mm. the mini LED zones a lot more dense on a monitor, so that creates some challenges. But certainly $2,000 plus pricing for mini LED seems a bit ridiculous, Um, especially once we start getting... Especially this year, I think it's going to be very hard to justify that. It might have been justifiable previously when it's kind of like there's no no alternative, so you can sell it for 
Yeah, OLED is yeah. not on the horizon. Yeah, there's no competition. You, know. so you can sell for whatever you want to and hope that there's a few suckers out there who are cashed up willing to spend 3000 bucks on that sort of tech. This year, I think it's going to be much harder to justify with like 42-inch LG TVs occupying some of that space that people might consider buying over that. So yeah, ViewSonic monitor coming out for $2,500 might be hard to justify. At the same time, there has been a few attempts at making mini LED a bit cheaper. We've seen the AOC, and I can't remember the exact model name. I'm usually pretty good with them, but there's a monitor that's 1440p. can't remember the refresh rates, like maybe 165 hertz, 170 hertz, something like that, but it's got a 500 and 500-ish zone backlight, and I think it's only eight or $900. So the backlight mm. being only 500-ish zones, I think it's that, like the AG274Q something. Um, when the... When you're only getting 500 zones, you're not going to get the best HDR experience, but that's going to be better than not having local dimming at all. So I think we'll start to see over time, you know, maybe the entry-level HDR panels will be similar to that sort of AOC monitor where it's sort of a 1440p sort of standard gaming monitor. They chuck in 500 backlighting zones. It's kind of good at the entry level. Then we hopefully we'll see the 1,000, 2,000 plus zones in the mid-range and then you're fully self-emitting OLED type stuff in the high end. I think that that would be a pretty good setup if we can achieve that in you know 2022, 2023 sort of time frame. That will really push HDR forward for PC gaming where it's really been lacking and kind of hard to get into at the moment. Well, yeah, Clean Sweep writes in and he goes, right now it seems like many LED prices are even higher than OLED. Even when OLED has a disadvantage of not having a few offerings below 42 inches. Is there any chance we could see many LED monitors drop to reasonable levels before the end of the year, before OLED hits monitors? It'd be nice to not have to buy a 42-inch TV or get something larger than 32 inches at the very least to have one of the best 4K 144 hertz monitors with proper 2.1 support uh, and without as many concerns for longevity, which, so I guess it's what, that's what I'm saying, though, is you do think think this is temporary and, and yeah. I, I of course would agree prices is they're going to come down on this stuff but you do think like in a few years we could have like 150 dollar mini led monitor well, i guess inflation it's hard for me to say what the entry monitor price will be anymore right but like what we were used to now for like a decent 1440p 144 hertz i guess it's like 200 plus 250 ish maybe a little more for a really nice one do you think mini LED is going to get there with a decent amount of dimming zones in a reasonable amount of time, or will it drop in price quickly and just kind of keep pace with OLED? Because that's what I always wonder is it will get cheaper. Will it get cheaper fast enough to outpace OLED coming to monitors? Um, yeah, it's a hard, hard question to answer on that. I think when you're sort of saying $200, $300 for mini LED, we're so far away from that that it's sort of predicting that in the next couple of years, I think it'd be very mm. optimistic. I think there's certainly room for mini LED to come in around $500, which is where we see today sort of really good. Like if you're buying a high-end 1440p mid refresh rate, so you're not quite going for your 240 hertz, but you just want like a sort of a really nice monitor, you can get that for $500. And I think if we saw mini LED hit that price point, then we'd start to see quite a lot of movement. So I guess the question is, would you will they be able to get OLED to that price, $500 for a monitor with mm. standard monitor specs soon with sort of the burn-in requirements? And I think that's probably pretty hard to 
to justify. I don't think that's going to happen sooner than the mini LED tech. The main issue with mm. the mini LED monitors was really that there were just a lack of manufacturers investing time making those panels. Almost all the monitors that we've seen so far mm. with mini LED have used Optronics panels. So without all the other competitors, you know, Samsung were un- probably unlikely to do too much. And I think the the new Odyssey monitors are being made by CSOT, so it's a little bit different. And LG, you know, they've sort of been slow to invest, but we're starting to see mm. some of the, I don't know whether you, it's fair to call these the second tier manufacturers, but the sort of the, the lower volume for monitors manufacturers like BOE, Inelux, for example, a lot of their panel timelines are really heavily investing into mini LED monitors. And they might not be 2000 zone ones, but 1440p with 500 mm. zones, those sort of monitors that no one was making them. So the fact that we're starting yeah. to see more manufacturers go, hey, there's an opportunity here to make these sort of products. I think that's going to drive a lot of the $500-ish sort of products. Maybe that's not going to happen this year, maybe a couple of years down the track. And I think OLED is going to be, especially if QD OLED's only made by one manufacturer with Samsung, if that's, you know, that's going to cause a bit of, you know, lack of competition, maybe, maybe a bit higher prices for some time. Yeah, like LG making all those TV panels, yeah. right? And then Sony was just using LG yeah. panels, you know, and like that caused such an issue with any competition. Yeah, so I think we need a bit of competition before we see OLED come to that price. But again, any movement here, like getting anything that's even remotely good for HDR at $500 would be so much better than what we've got now, where there's just nothing you can recommend at that price. So I'm I'm hopeful that it will happen quite soon. I think that this year, with so much more competition from the panel manufacturers, that pricing will move pretty quickly. Similar to what we saw with 4K 144Hz, where it sort of debuted a couple of years ago for $2,000, only one panel, not much competition, very expensive. And then within a couple of years, now there's panels from four or five different manufacturers, different options, Panels quickly hitting $900, $800, and now you can get them for like $600, $650. That pricing came down very, very quickly, and I'd expect that with HDR as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess to summarize, it kind of sounds like you're saying, and I think I do agree with you that it's much more likely mini LED will hit 500 in a reasonable amount of time before OLED will. Now, will it get down to 200 before OLED? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Just not, that's not happening anytime soon, though, guys. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, it's, it's a more mature technology. There's more companies making mini LED panels at the moment. So generally that has those sorts of pricing implications. All right. So shifting gears back to CPUs for Rembrandt uh, announced by AMD. I, what did you think of it? I mean, I think there were so many rumors, and, and, and I mean, you don't even need r- any rumors or sources. AMD announces a new big APU at the beginning of every year. So, <laughs> yep. like, we knew they'd announce something. Um, what, what do you think about it? Like, how, like, let's just leave it at that. Just very simple. Like, were you impressed? You know, what impressed you or didn't impress you about it the most? Yeah, it's always hard to answer these questions without having the products in hand. So, from what they showed, a lot of the focus seemed to be on the U series, so 6000U, 6800U, which is where I could see AMD, this product being the most successful for them, simply because they've already got a pretty substantial lead over Intel. I know Intel's about to release a whole new generation, but they already, you know, if you look at 11th gen 
versus the 5000 series and the H series, very competitive with both of those products. But if then you look at the same products in sort of the 15 to 28 watt class, AMD was well ahead in terms of performance. So Intel's, you know, if there's more room to catch up, then AMD potentially has, you know, they still have a chance of being quite competitive with the older Lake products with still having an eight core design. And obviously the new iGPU improvements sound pretty impressive. I think that's the thing that I'm most excited about is the finally ditching Vega after so many years and bringing RDNA 2 with hopefully some big performance improvements. I think that's where we'll see the main benefit from this new generation is in the thin and light systems where we can get decent iGPU performance in that very compact, very small, very efficient sort of form factor. I don't think they'll be as competitive um, based on what they're sort of, you know, they're not really talking too much about the H-series, so I don't imagine they'll be as competitive for the sort of gaming mm. laptops that we'd expect to see with, you know, the 60, what would be the 6800H, the 6900HX, all those sorts of products. I think Alder Lake will be very, very competitive there. So that's kind of where I see Rembrandt at the moment, the, the Zen 3 Plus stuff. It, again, it feels s- sort of like a stopgap, sort of like a higher Mm, mm -hmm. because they improve the platform so much with all the new features in terms of adding usb4 adding uh, the new decoding engine adding ddr5 that it does feel like a substantial upgrade but then without the cpu improve the substantial cpu improvements as well maybe on that front it's going to be a stopgap to zen 4 so it's that's kind of where i see it at the moment yeah substantial in terms of like well I, i forgot what the name of it was before renoir that to that was, yeah. I mean, hilariously huge, you know, and that to Cezanne was like so small. So it feels big compared to Renoir to Cezanne, but comparing, you know, to anything else before and, and comparing to these insane performance increases we're getting used to in the past few years from all these companies, finally, thank God. Um, it, it doesn't, I, I, I guess, what, what excites you the most about the integrated graphics? Because I, I think I sensed a little bit of that in you that you have this opinion as well of like, it's impressive, but only because Cezanne was such an iterative upgrade over Renoir. Like, I understand it doubled Cezanne's graphics performance and certain power consumption levels, but it was Vega 8. I mean, guys, mm-hmm. we had 11 Vega compute units on 14 nanometer it's about time they went back to 12 and there's no infinity cache on here. To me, it still feels like they're giving it enough graphics, but it's certainly not any more than we should expect for 2022. I mean, we're not in 2017 anymore. I would, I was hoping we'd have APUs actually with better integrated graphics than this a long time ago. I mean, I, I, what do you think about that? I don't know. I think some people saw it as a hot take for me that it's like, it's twice as strong, but I would hope so by now. Yeah, I think I think part of that is fair. Um, you know, the the performance of the previous APUs was being beaten by the highest configuration Tiger Lake parts. Now, some people say that mm-hmm. you know, Tiger Lake had some compatibility issues in some applications, so performance was a bit all over the place. But you know, Intel last year was producing a more performing, a higher performing product. So sort of to sit here and say, you know, it's it's double the performance, but it is double from a perform from a product that wasn't in the leading performance tier. So they're sort of And it was really derived from something from a previous year. Yeah, they're coming from behind to hopefully be in front if the performance claims are accurate. Again, we'll have to compare that to Old Lake as well because we haven't seen that generation yet. But it, it should be 
enough of an upgrade to make them competitive. As for whether it's enough of an upgrade to be good, that that's another question. And I think it, for that, it's really going to depend on the the class of product that you're talking about. Because right. in an H series style product, like a larger laptop that is using APUs at 45 or 60 watts or whatever they want to do. I mean, normally that product would include a discrete GPU, but let's say for for now they want to make some ridiculously slim laptop that, you know, they they could benefit from a bigger integrated graphics. I don't think it's going to be powerful enough to sort of get rid of those 35-watt tier discrete GPUs that we see, sort of like a, a, a GTX 1650 or RTX 3050 running at 35 watts. I don't think it's going to be as good as that where theoretically an APU could be that good if they decide to put in more compute units and resources in there. But I think for the sort of everyday consumer 13-inch laptops, mm-hmm. the performance should be very good, um, The especially with Tiger Lake most of the time requiring the higher power level and the mm. top-tier memory configurations to get the most out of that sort of chip. And then on top of that, you know, RDNAs are going to be more compatible with today's games and that sort of thing. I think there's a lot of things to get excited about for that sort of form factor. But again, with these APUs... For the truly budget laptops, right? It's like... But that's my question is, will this end up in those budget laptops, though, with enough compute units being better than what you always had to deal with? Feel like a Vega 7 where it's like, hey, Vega 7 could play every recent AAA game. It's just probably 720p low. Um, Is this going to be 1080p low, though? Because I don't know. Those slides, I was like, guys, why is anyone impressed by them saying you're playing 1080p? at 59 frames per second averages, which means it's probably dropping to 40 with FSR turned on. That doesn't scream AAA to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, AAA gaming of that quality, I think, is mostly going to be for your discrete GPU platforms. There are certainly some games that an APU, especially at 15 or 28 watts, just, you know, the experience is terrible. Like, if you try and play Cyberpunk, even on low settings at, very low resolutions at 15 watts, you know, 30 FPS or lower is sort of what you're looking at. It's really not very fast. So if you can get the majority of games at least running, I think that would be sort of a milestone. I know it sounds ridiculous to say running games is a milestone, but on a 13-inch laptop, there's a lot of experiences that are really quite bad. So if they can improve that, so Mm -hmm. even if you're getting 720p and you're running it, a reasonable frame rate, that's at least going to make it playable versus unplayable for previous generations. But certainly I wouldn't be expecting a 1080p 60 FPS experience on these sort of systems. That's just that's just not going to happen. It's not not going to be that powerful. Right. And I agree that if there was something that I were going to say is new brought to the table by this is basically... And and again, who knows, maybe there will be some that's cut down to like a quad core with only six compute units or something, uh, or eight compute units. I don't know, or four, who knows? Like, as long as they don't make SKUs that week, which I guess I could probably pull it up and see what they've announced so far. I, I think this might make it standard, though, that if you buy an AMD laptop that's a $400 one, you can run a game. Like, and before it was still certainly up for debate if you could run every game. And I do think that's exciting, you know, and I do think that is new. Yeah, I think the the issue that we're going to see is the six core models from the 6000 series 
the GPU's cut in half. So I believe the GPU okay. can only be either 12 or 6 compute units in the way that it's designed. So they can either go the full ah. or half configuration. Just looking at the way they're sort of, you know, they've shown the diagrams and stuff, that's how it appears to be. And certainly the SKUs are either 12 for the... That's probably true, yeah. by the way, just to jump in. Like previous, um, I was actually told previous RDNA architectures they need to lose four at a time, I believe it was. So I don't know if anyone's looking around at how it RDNA2 segmented. They're like, why don't they just disable? They can't. That version of RDNA2 had to be four at a time. And every RDNA architecture they have has these weird ratios that they have to follow. Yep. So if you've seen that now, I'm sure that's not a coincidence. Yeah, I mean, that's just what the SKU table says. The, the Ryzen 5 parts are six compute units. The ones above that are, are 12 compute units. So it's going to... We're going to have to see how that six compute unit part goes because the the sixty six hundred U, I think it would be, um, that's going to be the part that is more likely to be seeing the four hundred dollars mm. systems. But then AMD always muddies the waters by still selling the in the U series at mm. least the older generation parts at the same time. So we're still seeing some of the Zen three, the non plus Zen parts at the bottom of that stack, which I would expect is probably going to be seeing those four hundred dollar laptops before the newer products, which is going to make it even more complicated. But, yeah, there is still some laptops out there where they're 13-inch, they're very slim, they're sort of on the higher end of the scale that, you know, previously they might have come with maybe like an MX350, MX450 type GPU, so that's sort of the 10 to 15 watt discrete GPU plus the APU. And I'd think mm -hmm. that the performance of these new AMD chips should be around the mark of that. Um Prop yeah. potentially better. We'll have to see how the benchmarks go on that. But if they can do that with one chip, that's, yeah, if they can do that with one chip, that's going to be an improvement as well, I think. Yeah, I, I think there's a good, I was going to say, I think there's a good chance that they'll be competitive with even the 550. That's yeah. not even out yet because they're showing performance where it's pretty close to a 1650 max Q. Yep. Okay, well, the MX550 is a 1650 max Q with the bus cut in half. So... I think that already we're seeing a situation where Intel, uh, Intel, <laughs> NVIDIA doesn't know what to do with their MX series anymore, that they don't really have an answer to Rembrandt's performance that it is. And they're always close, right? Vega 8 yeah. was always like 20% behind the 350 or whatever, or the 450. I, I do think this is where NVIDIA is going to have real trouble competing there. Yeah, I agree. I think at the same time, I think that those 10 watt discrete GPUs, they really should never have existed in the first place. Like if you're adding an entire chip into your system in a, you know, a space constrained laptop where you, know, you don't want to be adding a lot of additional stuff and then you're only, the, you know, you're only using 10 watts, the performance is not that great, that sort of thing really should have been what APUs should have been doing. Like APUs should have been delivering the performance of the MX series for some time. At least that's sort of... But they were always just a little yeah. too weak and yeah. Intel didn't have good integrated for a long time. So I think there was this opening where... Yeah, I agree. Again, especially with uh, GP108, which I believe, you know, that was using the 1030 and the MX150. That one specifically was like 100 millimeters squared. So it was so small that I, I think I did the math. It was like 20 bucks to add it to a laptop. And they were like, well, then we might as well use this. Yeah, You know, if we can spend $20 and give those HD Intel graphics a 400% boost, we're going to do it. Um, yeah. But NVIDIA hasn't really had a good die for that use case for a while now. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Obviously, pre in previous generations, the integrated graphics, especially from Intel, were 
dire, like pretty bad. So I think what I'd like to see from this generation would be the the sort of the first point where discrete GPUs make sense is sort of around that 30 to 35 watt mark. Mm -hmm. If we can get APUs to that point where, yeah, they're not just adding like a 10 watt discrete thing into a 13 inch system, then that that would be good. But, uh, you know, 35 watts is still, yeah, I think the discrete GPUs would still Mm -hmm. quite handily outperform this sort of integrated graphics, especially when a lot of those 35 watt GPUs start using their own dedicated memory using GDDR6 or whatever, whereas APUs are always going to be constrained by DDR5, LPDDR5, and the the memory buses that they use there. They're not going crazy like Apple by putting, you know, quad quad channel memory, eight channel memory in there. They're still sticking to fairly traditional mm-hmm. layouts, which is always going to limit those APUs from achieving the performance of those sort of entry level discrete GPUs. So. Yeah, I sort of agree what you're saying partly there where you, an APU I think could deliver better performance if they start adding in more resources there, but they're just not at this stage yet, unfortunately. Right, and uh, Uwu, that one guy, writes in and he says, did you guys catch that jab at Intel's Alder Lake AMD made at CES? The guy goes, AMD is the only team that can deliver a performance core and an efficient core in the same core. I found it quite funny, not only because the 12900K stock settings use more energy than my 6700 XT, but because that could have been referenced to what Tom has been saying recently and leaked a few months ago about Zen 4D, or maybe Zen 4C is what they may actually end up calling it, Zen 5's big little approach. And all this is getting me thinking about what a future AMD or Intel laptop AP might look like. As, as of right now, Alder Lake features 20 threads in a 45-watt package. Rembrandt, powered by RDNA 2, is on the horizon. Raptor Lake's on the horizon. Meteor Lake. So my question is, what will a gaming laptop APU look like? Or, or what do you wish it would look like from both AMD and Intel by 2024? Hmm. Good question. I think, again, it really depends what these companies have on offer to, to integrate into their chips. But I think we... One of the main benefits that we'll see and one of the benefits I'm hoping that we'll see is with the sort of multi-chip, multi-die approaches and stacking and all those sorts of things, Mm. it's going to allow APUs to get a lot larger. Like previously, a lot of challenges sort of making monolithic APUs and making them 400 square millimeters, 500 square millimeters, like how viable is that? And I think that stopped a lot of the advancements in graphics on the APU side because you don't... You don't want to start making these huge dies and then having to segment them down into sort of your lower tier parts. I think a couple of things Mm. I'd like to see is a company like AMD, I really think should make more than one APU die. Instead of trying to make everything from the U series all the way up to desktop APUs from one die, sort of doing an Intel approach, like Intel sort of started to do this, this generation where you have multiple different options where maybe one has lower cpu cores lower gpu cores and is smaller and then you go you go up the stack you start adding more dies you start adding more compute capabilities i think what i'd like to see is certainly the top end of apus should be including enough gpu and cpu resources to be sort of a fairly capable mid to entry level gaming system like i don't see mm-hmm. what like like we're sort of talking about i don't see the need necessarily for 35 watt gpus or potentially even as high up as sort of that the 80 watts like we see from an, an m1 max type configuration from apple i think there's a lot of room there with these new packaging technologies multi-die approaches 
to create single systems that can do all of that. And certainly with Intel and AMD focusing quite a lot on having capable discrete GPUs these days, that sort of thing should be possible. And that will make it difficult for NVIDIA to compete in that market if they can offer a single chip solution. Maybe it's got you know, it's going to need to have more lanes of memory, you know, connectivity and all that sort of thing. But that, that's sort of where I'd like to see it go. And having just a much wider range of options covering low power, mid power, sort of medium gaming power sort of systems. And I think that should be possible with this, these next couple of generations. Yeah, I think um, it, when I, I answer a question like uh, kind of just speculation, like what do you wish they'd make? You just have to ask what year. And I think what annoys me just a little about Rembrandt is kind of like what you're saying is I wish they just made a different APU on top of it. I would actually go as far as to say, I think Rembrandt has graphics that are too strong for what they're doing. Like why not give it eight compute units, make the die smaller, make it cheaper, use less energy overall, then make a separate APU Maybe because it, it all it is constrained to, I believe, about 250 millimeters squared is where the APU just gets a little too big to fit in the normal configurations OEMs are working with. But it's only 200. They have room to add 24 megabytes of infinity cache and double the compute units are, on, are like three millimeters squared. But just so everyone knows like that is actually a very small part of the die, relatively speaking. And if they have that, a 24 compute unit, 24 infinity cache, you know, because it seems like 16 megabytes is barely enough kind of for 1080p. 32 is a little more than enough. 24 might just be that Goldilocks zone where the DDR5 does not hold it back. I think they could have delivered something stronger than a 6500 XT, you know, so around a 1660 levels of performance in an APU. I think they could have done it this year and it just annoys me they didn't. What I what I don't begrudge them is why they haven't done it yet. And I don't think it, I think it's because they didn't have enough resources. I think they tried having those lopsided APUs that had only four cores and just all like over 10 compute units for a while. They just couldn't sell them. And they realized maybe there's a reason Intel's giving you the minimum amount of graphics because they know either it's going in a low end system where it'll be cut down or it's going in a high end system where it's going to have a discrete card. I, I think that's going to change with, what's coming up with like with the fact that they have more resources now. I just, I just, but I still, I'm hoping it is because it just surprises me they haven't done it yet, right? Like I'd feel like right about now is where I would have expected them to have some other offering next to it, uh, Rembrandt, that they don't seem to have. Yeah, I think it, it, it definitely would have required the DDR5 generation to bother with that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. The DDR4 generation just, just wouldn't have gotten enough bandwidth to justify having massive GPUs in there. So again, sort of the first generation of DDR5 APUs, are they going to improve that over time, especially as maybe we start seeing higher clocks on DDR5 over time? Possibly. I think they'll probably need to adjust the memory, sort of go to quad channel memory or something like that as well. So there's certainly room for them to do that. Whether they should have been doing that now, you know, AMD still trying to find a foothold in the the APU and laptop mm. market. So the chips that they do have, which I, even something like a 5800U, I think that's a very good product. Like it's a very, it, it performs well. It's mm-hmm. got adequate graphics. It might not have the best graphics in that sort of form factor compared to Tiger Lake, but CPU performance is very good. It's, you know, it's got all the, you know, it's got some of the features that you'd want. And then you see what, like two, three laptops use it. So they've got to overcome that challenge first before I think they justify a lot of resources developing big, beastly APUs that may not sell, require a lot of, you know, wafers to manufacture. So 
I would expect them to attempt that in the next couple of generations, or at least I hope they will. But as for coming so soon with it, yeah, I'm not sure whether it was as viable. Yeah, you'd think they'd probably need some kind of introductory partner, like the the thing I just described, a version of Rembrandt basically with double the graphics performance. They probably would only be able to justify that if they knew Microsoft would use that in the Surface laptop and yep. buy up half of them. Because otherwise, it's just such a risk. There were so many products they made, like that partnership with Intel, the Vega H, like yep. SOC, that just nothing used and was properly programmed for that just throttled like crazy, at least the ones I tested did. Like, it's a risk for a smaller company. Um, Brett Summers writes in, Hey, Tom and Tim, just wondering how you both feel about mobile hardware in 2022 in general. How do you expect the landscape to play out? Personally, based off of seeing Alder Lake on desktop, I can only assume Intel is going to reign supreme in both single and multi-threaded workloads due to raw IPC clock speeds and the core advantage Intel has right now. And by the way, I never thought I'd be writing that as of a year ago. But do you think AMD's new platform-focused features like the various types of smart shift, improved connectivity, the brand name Ryzen seems to have right now will carry it well through 2022? Just have a hard time seeing Ryzen being competitive unless we're talking about performance per watt or lower TDP models. Yeah, uh, I think parts of this question is certainly fair. I think the Alder Lake design is more, again, we haven't tested it yet, so it's hard to say, but I think it's more conducive to being the highest performing option based on you know, what, you've, what we've seen on the desktop mm-hmm. side of things and the configurations that they're offering on mobile with like, you know, your six cores plus the eight efficient cores. That should be pretty good for a lot of laptops. Well, I mean, what, it's six plus eight. Yep. The i5-12600K is six plus four. They're bringing that to a laptop. It's conceivable that's going to be very hard to compete with in the H series. Yeah, I would think so, um, especially at the higher power levels because Intel already is very competitive, mm-hmm. like, I guess I shouldn't really say already because we're about to get a new laptop generation. So in the prior generation, let's call it, um, at those higher power levels, like 65, 75 watts, which a lot of the top-end gaming laptops can do, the gap between Intel and AMD was pretty small um, in a sort of performance at that wattage level. So with this next generation, I expect them to go far beyond that in terms of performance. So that's going mm-hmm. to give them a big advantage. And certainly the Zen 3 Plus parts don't look like having as much of a performance gain on the CPU side, which, again, that should give Intel an advantage. I guess the question I have is, given how we've seen the scaling previously, how do they go with the mm-hmm. lower power levels, especially 45 watts with sort of the six-core models, even down to 35 watts? AMB has a pretty substantial lead there for things like multi-thread performance. So it depends... I guess it depends how much of a gain they can get in those constrained wattages. We've seen some people take desktop parts and severely limit the power levels and getting some decent results there. So I guess there's a lot of hope there, but you know they've got a gap to close, that's for sure. And then in the low power sort of U-series, P-series type stuff, yeah, it's, it, I'm not quite sure how that's going to land because they are very far behind with, with the Tiger Lake quad cores. Mm. So going up to the the core levels that they've got should deliver a lot more performance, but they're coming from so far behind that it's going to, it depends where that plays out, like where exactly does it lie in terms of how much of a gain that they've been able to achieve. And I think not showing too much performance data at CES in terms of where those parts lie. You know, they, they've released the SKU table, so mm-hmm. we know what parts are coming, but they didn't want to talk about performance at all. I usually find that kind of suspicious. So I'm kind of a bit wary on where that specific product is going to lie. If they're not willing to talk about it, I, 
you know, how competitive are they going to be? Sort of similar to AMD's 6000H series. They kind of focused on the U series, didn't talk a lot about the H series. So where does the performance lie for that part? Those are things that we're going to have to, going to, have to explore. But yeah, I think that's, that's sort of where it will lie. But you know, Ryzen on the brand name stuff should be kind of a selling point for them. Intel is obviously still very strong for mm-hmm. mainstream buyers. And AMD has always had the ability to price their products cheaper than what Intel are offering, which I would expect to continue this year. Ryzen laptops have generally been better bang for buck, even for gaming laptops where Intel may be outperforming in a certain segment. Mm-hmm. So I, I would expect something like that could continue this year as well. Yeah, I I think it's pretty obvious what AMD and Intel are telegraphing here. AMD is focusing on efficiency. Well, they say, oh, now we have 24-hour battery life. We have, like, was it 50 power-saving features, like the like super complex ways of doing multiple deep sleep areas rapidly at the all over the chip. I think AMD thinks they're going to have an advantage in the U series. And Intel didn't really talk about power usage at all with Alder Lake laptops from what I could tell, which I found... Very, very atypical. Even with Tiger Lake, Intel was like, look at this new battery life. Look at this new... I think Intel is going to increase performance at power consumption levels all over their lineup. But I think when you get below 35 watts, AMD's just going to have a huge advantage um, in terms of efficiency. I think that seems to be what both companies are telegraphing. If If that stops AMD from taking market share, though, I actually don't know because it seems like already AMD was already focusing on 35 watts and less for all of their laptops anyways. And so I I, I don't think it's, I I tentatively don't expect AMD to lose a ton of laptop market share that they might actually be able to keep it and even take a little, but Intel's not going to lose much more. Yeah. A lot of the OEMs uh, this generation seem to be more keen on releasing AMD laptops. So, Mm -hmm. which I whether or not that's a performance-related thing or just offering competition, offering options for consumers, I'm not sure. So we're going to have to see how they actually sell <laughs> to see how, how that plays out. But certainly there's going to be a lot of options. So it's I don't expect to go backwards on the amount of laptops that we see with AMD parts in them. I would expect more than the previous generations, which especially for Ultrabook-type products is going to be pretty big because that's an area where there's not too many options available. Gaming laptops has always been sort of a, a mm. decent-ish lineup range that you can choose from. So, yeah, a lot of the sort of laptop stuff doesn't always play out in terms of performance either. It's a lot of the marketing stuff. You know, mm-hmm. we were just talking about, uh, say, like in, how's NVIDIA's discrete GPUs going to compete in sort of the low power levels? Well, do they even have to compete because people want that NVIDIA sticker on their laptop? And <laughs> yeah. a lot of times people, you know, they've heard about Ryzen, maybe they want the AMD sticker on their laptop at the moment. I'm not sure. Maybe for a gaming laptop that's more important for them. So those things play out a lot more in this space than maybe I'd like to see. Maybe I'd like to see a bit more focus on people buying on performance as opposed to brand. But AMD's brand is getting better in laptops, and I think that's going to help them a bit this generation. But, again, with, with the performance side of things, it, it's there's a lot of interesting questions that are going to need to be answered there, especially around performance per watt and those sorts of questions because, yeah, they're going to need to start competing with Apple pretty seriously in those areas pretty quickly, I'd say. Yeah, and DJ5K writes, and he says, Hey, Tom and Tim, what do you make of the new Radeon S mobile GPUs, both in naming and actual products? From a naming standpoint, I find it might get confusing with the amount of SKUs, which actually just to cut in here, 
I was a little confused. I remember them announcing like, oh, we have six nanometer coming and we have the six, the S series coming. And I was like, oh, so the 60 H because right. Because if you think about how their CPUs are named the HS, the S means we basically brought the same performance down 10 Watts. It's the better yields. And then when I looked at the 6,800 S, I'm like, this is a different die than the 6,800 M. This is not, it seems a little weird, but to continue his question, um, from a naming standpoint, I find it might get confusing with the amount of SKUs. On the other hand, is a clear distinction between D- TDP levels, I guess, in contrast to NVIDIA's current mess. For the product itself, I did not catch enough info on specs to understand what NVIDIA or Intel GPUs they may be tackling, but maybe you can paint a picture of what products would ship with these. Best DOM. So yeah, I mean, just in general, like, what do you think of the new mobile series they announced? I was personally impressed with a lot of the numbers they showed. I guess they need to be tested. Yeah, the numbers are reasonably impressive, I, I think. I think the main issue that AMD has is you know, how many laptops do we see using these the existing parts that they had? Like they had three parts and they probably had three laptops using them. So releasing, mm-hmm. how many have they got now? Like another six, five or six products in I think the it's like M six series or eight, yeah. and then another three in the S series, oh. something like that. So yeah, probably like eight in total. Yeah, if there's only three laptops using them, what's the point? (laughs) It's kind of like maybe, at least I would have thought, I would have placed more focus on trying to get the existing parts actually used before launching a whole bunch more products. Now, maybe they need to launch the products so that laptop manufacturers are interested in using them. So maybe there's a bit of Mm -hmm. chicken and egg situation. But, you know, I, I look at the lineup and I think there's probably a couple too many SKUs in here than, than they need. I think they maybe need to focus more mm-hmm. on one or two, like a high-performance, very competitive yeah. part at the top end, sort of saying, hey, we've got the we've got the best laptop GPU. If that's true, then they can market that. That would be good for them. And then maybe focusing on some of the key markets that we see laptop GPUs used in, like RTX 3050, RTX 3060 type products, very popular. Mm-hmm. So having a, a 6600M and a 6600S and then the 6500M, I would have thought that's where I would have seen the focus in. So, yeah, we're going to see these used obviously in a, a wide range of laptops. Maybe the S-Series would be in the sort of the slim and light you know, MSI Stealth, Gigabyte Aero type products where normally they'd be using the Max-Q, now just no mm-hmm. Max-Q name, but lower the TDP level laptops. Yeah. So they're trying to compete there. They're trying to compete with the, all the different offerings that NVIDIA has because NVIDIA has so many different configurations and offerings for laptop vendors that a laptop vendor can make any design they want, basically, and there's an NVIDIA GPU that's going to suit that product. So I think AMD is trying to do that with these products. But again, I expect them to struggle getting these in laptops. I think there's not going to be too many that will use them, probably mostly the AMD Advantage laptops. We'll see. But I think NVIDIA will still be pretty dominant this generation on the laptop side. Yeah, I, I feel like the 6500M and 6300M, which are going, which they say they're going for that 25 to 35 watt area there with those ones. I think those are going to be very hard for NVIDIA to compete with on paper because, I mean, the numbers they're showing, and I know NVIDIA's got an MX550 coming out, but I don't expect that to be more than 20%, 30% better than the 450. I mean, they showed the, like the, what I'm assuming is the 60, yeah, I think it was the 6300M beating the 450 by four, like 300% or something absurd. So I I think this makes the whole, even the MX570, I think we'll have trouble competing with that. Above that though, I just don't, 
know why anyone would use these when they weren't using the ones they were before, I guess is what I'm saying. And And I actually really agree. I found like the thing like that 6650, I'm confusing. Like, why does that exist? I don't understand. Like, why aren't you just focusing on these 6800S, which I believe is the same die. And then, you know, a 68, just actually selling the 6700M. I don't, I don't really understand what that's about. And well, actually, Guntis Pageless writes and he says, hello, Tom and Tim. The AMD Advantage laptop platform looks mighty impressive, but what are your predictions on availability? In 2021, no laptops with RDNA 2 GPUs were available for sale, at least around me. So I don't get, I'm not getting my hopes up very high. Maybe switching mobile APUs to TSMC 6 nanometer will improve the supply overall. Do you have a crystal ball with you or did you leave it at St- Steve's place? Yeah, and I want to, I don't, I don't think it's because they're not making these chips. I, I just think no OEMs are choosing to use them. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's supplies there if they wanted the supply. Like AMD is probably making a better margin on mobile GPUs than selling those same GPUs and putting them in desktop cards. Um, that's usually the case. So I would expect that, yeah, the supply issue shouldn't really be a problem, but it's more a brand thing, I think. I think... Laptops are so just they're just sold in a different market from desktops. People that buy desktops do a lot more research, especially if you're building your own PC. Mm-hmm. So the DIY channel market, you know, people are looking at performance reviews. You know, hope hopefully people are watching hardware unboxed and those sort of channels that are going to give detailed breakdowns on what's the best part, what should I be buying, where am I spending the best money? Because if you're building a PC, it's going to be you know, you're doing it to save money over buying a pre-built. You're doing it for the fun of it, the experience. You're an enthusiast, right? So you're going to have a very good idea of the performance. And AMD, they still have products that perform reasonably well. So for people that do research, there's going to be areas where it makes sense to buy. But laptop buyers, a bit of a different sort of group of people. There are people that do research still like desktops mm-hmm. and buy products based on the best performance, the best performance per watt. But there's a lot of other considerations with laptops like features, you know, even if you're getting the best performing GPU, if you don't have the best quality display or build quality or mm-hmm. keyboard or whatever, then those products maybe aren't going to sell. And then on top of that, you know, when speaking to retails and OEMs, the NVIDIA sticker is such a big selling point for laptops that it's hard to sell AMD, you know, products like AMD plus AMD products to everyday consumers that are just going down to their local store, they're saying, hey, I want I want a laptop for gaming. What do I buy? I've heard NVIDIA is really good. So I, w- I want to see that NVIDIA name somewhere on the box. Whereas AMD, you know, historically for laptops has been used for low-end products, like, you know, sort of your Chromebook style things, you know, the Windows equivalent of Chromebooks with Athlon products. You know, they've, they've had some brand issues with uh, sort of your mainstream buyer. And I think that's where they're really going to struggle getting these parts in is that while on the while on the desktop, they still don't really have that lead in terms of performance and mind share and having all the ray tracing features and DLSS features, that flows down to laptops as well. So I think, yeah, that's going to be the main concern for them, not having the NVIDIA name, basically, even if the performance is still pretty good for those products. Yeah, and I, I don't think this can be emphasized enough. And this is something I actually talked about with Steve when he was on recently, that I think we were underestimating NVIDIA's mindshare, like where it's at, because it's just, it's absurd. Like it's just a whole other level than I think. And I, we all knew they had more than Radeon, but 
I think it's more than that because like I just had Google Fiber finally installed, which finally it doesn't take more time to upload my videos to YouTube than render them. That's really nice. But it was interesting. The guy there, I could tell he was really informed. I started, he asked me what PC I had. We started talking about like my a 3070 founders. He's like, oh, you actually have a founders? And I'm like, yes, they kind of exist. And like we were talking about, and he seemed to really know what he was talking about. But the only thing he asked to me was, oh, so what? What do you think the 4090 is going to be like? He didn't even bring up Radeon, you know, and the amount of people that do that, I just think it's such an, it's such a headwind for AMD and GPUs. And I think it's a bigger one, especially in laptops than a lot of people realize. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we've seen Ryzen, we've seen this sort of thing come with Ryzen for laptops because the 4000 series for Ryzen mobile was very good for eight series. You know, the multi-thread performance was leagues ahead of what Intel was offering at the time. And then Intel laptops still massively outsold and were in available in way more designs. It was only until Ryzen sort mm-hmm. of became that dominant force in desktops that you started to see the pressure and the the sort of the word of mouth, the people talking about on Reddit and Twitter and all those you know, Discord chats. That has to push down to laptops for it to become you know, people start buying and people start making a big deal about AMD laptops, regardless of what their performance level is at. Whereas AMD hasn't had that for GPUs. They still don't have it now. We don't know when they're going to have that sort of situation. And I think they've. Mm-hmm. this is where they've really, I think, made some errors with their desktop GPU lineup over the past couple of generations. You know, something like a 5700 XT was a good product. It was competitive. It was you know, a good bang for buck buy for people looking at that sort of product, comparing it against an RTX 2070, but not having a high-end product, no matter how, you know, expensive Mm -hmm. and large it was and not having that product hurts the perception among consumers. So by not being able to say we have the best performing GPU, people still think that NVIDIA has that product and they kind of still do to some degree, whether you you know, depending on where you look at mm-hmm. for 3090 versus 6900 XT. But that plays a lot into NVIDIA's marketing, having the best products. So even if down the product stack, you're seeing products that are very competitive, people still think, oh, but NVIDIA, they've got the fastest GPU. So surely that means their mid-range products are also mm-hmm. faster than the competition, even if that's yeah, not Yeah, that's true. why they're launching the 3090 Ti. They're tired yeah. of Steve using the 6900 XT in CPU testing. Yeah, and then on top of that, AMD is massively struggled with features that are becoming more and more relevant through NVIDIA's marketing with their GPUs, things like the ray tracing support level. Um, Even if AMD GPUs support ray tracing and support it, you know, you can run it in all the current games, NVIDIA is going ham on saying these are RTX games. You know, this game Mm -hmm. uses RTX technology when there's no requirement for you to use an NVIDIA GPU in those games. It's just that it's advertised that way so it makes you think that you need the NVIDIA product, DLSS, really big feature these days that AMD doesn't have a competitor for at the moment on the level of, well, on, on the perform side of performance for a start, but also in terms of marketing and mind share with people. And all these mm-hmm. things affect you know, their laptops. And that's why I would have thought, and Steve and I have talked about this a lot, that it, I think AMD undersupplied their GPUs for this desktop generation, and it would have benefited them in the long term to allocate more supply, even if they're not making as much per die or per wafer selling GPUs like a 6700 XT, I think it would have benefited the mindshare in the long term to 
when you can't buy a GPU and AMD is your only option, people can buy an AMD GPU and experience what AMD has to offer without all of the sort of marketing stuff playing out. So I think maybe they've lost a little bit of a trick there in terms of just getting GPUs in people's hands so that they can sort of see what it's like, see what owning an AMD GPU is like. And I think that would have benefited some of the some of their consumers down the line once they can realize that maybe the differences between the two vendors weren't as significant as the marketing and mindshare is making it out to be. Well, yeah, and I, I think a lot of people need to just add some insight. Like AMD buys allocations ahead of time. Right now, they're trying to supply as many to Epic as they can because, and I've had a lot of server engineers on Broken Silicon, once they switch to a new vendor, like in a lot are the security issues with Intel, I, I, I think a lot of gamers just will never understand how much that accelerated AMD's Epic market share take, our, our server market share uptake is when they just got fed up with all those Intel security problems. Um, once you take server market share, it stays. Like consumers will go anywhere. And Ryzen's tied to that. They use the same chiplet. So and, and so I think it was a double whammy of we're making more profits on these 71 or what is it like 80 now millimeter squared chiplets with Zen 3 than we would be with Zen uh, RDNA 2. Although I've been told that the top end RDNA 2 actually has pretty crazy. It has never before seen profit margins for what AMD used to be selling their stuff for, certainly. I guess what, I, what I'm what i going to lead to is I, I think that they know that they should have supplied more GPs if they could have. It's just I don't think it would have been as easy as doing it. I, oh, I don't know. I, and, yeah, 100%. Like, I, I'm, and they did ship more silicon than any previous gen. Like they did. And and, they, and think this is the, the 6800 XT, 6900 XT. That's the biggest die they've ever made. That's two 5700 XTs and they outship previous generations. So they're shipping way more silicon space than they were before. It's just, it. they had a, you're right, if they would have sold double, it would have all sold though. And that, that, that it, would have, yeah. it would have taken market share. Yeah, I, I think, you know, that previous discussion was obviously more sort of an idealistic look at it because, you know, there's, there's many considerations there. And obviously as a company, you want to be making as much money as possible. So, so me sitting here saying, don't sell products that make tons you tons and tons no, but of money I think it and, is a valid point and, and ship them over to gpus doesn't make a lot of business sense in some areas but potentially the area i would have thought you know even if they can just maybe conceded a couple of markets like you know laptop gpus probably mm. weren't going to see a lot of market share this this generation yeah. if they had not shipped any of those and put them all into the desktops or potentially cooled down a bit on the desktop cpu side and put more of them into into gpus or Whatever, yeah. I don't expect them to cannibalize Epic. I think you make some really good points there about how you know that's a huge market for them, and they need to keep, you know, if they want to be successful, you know, they need to ship a lot of products into that space. But yeah, if there was kind of an opportunity, and again, that they can't predict these things ahead of time. So this the amount of supply that they locked in at the at the fabs to produce for GPUs was set well before it turned out that GPUs were hard to come by, and they should have made more. So very challenging for them. Um, but yeah, if they had, but I don't disagree with you though. Yeah. I, I, I think that there is more they could have done as well. Like I, I didn't even think of that. Like why even bother with this laptop market share? You're just not going to take until you gain desktop mind share. That's a, that's a very good point. And I think my understanding, for example, just so everyone knows is, well, we know the 6,900 XT has absurd margins, but my understanding is the 6,800 XT also had like double the margins they were accepting previous gen. Like that thing not anymore, 
with how much more expensive every component is, but at launch it was. It was making them crazy margins. I think they focused on that more than they should have. I think they were competitive with NVIDIA in the top end again, and the 6600 XT is a great die at the right price. That's, you know, two-thirds the size of a 6700 XT. I really just think the argument I would make is not only stop making those laptop chips they can't seem to take any market share with, but... Maybe just stop making Navi 21 for a bit. It, well, obviously they have like server cards maybe, but not really. They're not really selling any of those either. Like just make just a, a pile of 6,600 XTs at a $300 MSRP and spit them out over the f- holiday season. Like something like that, I think could have gone a very, very long way. Yeah, that as well. You know, I think, what's the sort of word to say? Maybe retiring older generation products earlier than they should have as well. Mm-hmm. Like, AMD uses a lot of different fab technologies, continuing to produce, you know, obviously 5700 XTs are out because those are seven nanometer products. But, you know, that mm-hmm. your RX5, you know, they've just launched a 6500 XT that appears to be an RX480, which they could have still been making on the ancient, by today's standards, tech, fab technology that they were using. And now they're selling this sort of product that is potentially not going to be you know, that much better in terms of cost performance. Hey, hey, it's an RX 590 with half the RAM, which is still in the same, I would argue, pretty much tier of performance. But yeah, yeah. like if they could if they could have continued to flood the market with $150 MSRP, so, you know, whatever the real price tends yeah. out to be, but flood the market with RX 570s, RX 580s on older nodes using older tech. And, you know, th- those are other areas where AMD could have maybe optimized their GPU sort of share. So yeah, we'll, we'll have to see whether in a couple of years that's kind of a missed missed call for them and where, how that affects them in the future for GPU generations because I would, I would expect that a lot of people this generation have spent so much on their GPU that they're going to be potentially put off a bit upgrading in the future. And obviously a lot of those customers are still NVIDIA customers because NVIDIA's also shipped a record amount of GPUs in the past little bit. So yeah, if they, if they want to make headroom into these laptop markets and mainstream markets where people go into a store without doing much research and have only heard little bits and pieces here and there, maybe from a friend or they've seen something on the internet, they've seen some advertising, yeah, they're going to need to make a really big push into the sort of the enthusiast market that does, in my opinion, really does drive those sales in the future for those other products just through word of mouth and stuff. So yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But Maybe they missed a trick a Well, I want to kind of continue the 6500 XT discussion now. and, and I, But first, I'm actually going to bring up something you might find interesting. So early or mid last year, I did a video called Does, Should AMD Have Made the RX 6490, which I said is a 12 nanometer variant of an RDNA. It doesn't even need to be RDNA 2. Who cares? RDNA architecture that maybe uses, you know, what if it was something... I don't know, right? Probably weaker than a 5700 and used 50% more energy because it's on an older node. But what if they could have just made an unlimited amount of them of like at 250, you know? And that's something I really looked into. And I even interviewed Daniel Nenny, the founder of semiwiki.com about that. And the unfortunate truth that I came to from my analysis was, again, it's kind of coulda, shoulda, woulda, because Global Foundries has their capacity booked till I believe 2024 now. Yep. So they don't have this capacity for it. And it takes design hours. It takes like, it would take like $20, $50 million to design this die for an older node. How long is it going to be effective? I don't know. I think the only option really was, like you say, if they probably would have sold the RX 590 with 
faster RAM longer? I, yeah, I don't know. I don't think they even need it. But then it doesn't have ray tracing. Does that hurt their brand if they're like, by the way, this one doesn't have any of the, re- doesn't even have the newest HDMI, guys. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, you're in a supply-constrained market. Any product would probably sell. So whether or not that helps their market share if they don't have the Yeah, true, features, true. You know, they were sort of competing against GTX 1650s, which don't have ray tracing either. So I think those are still valid points, though. Like, obviously, that would have an impact down the line. And yeah, the the fab capacity stuff, obviously extremely valid. You know, what we're talking about, again, is very, very much an ideal, you know, if they were genius level predicting, like they could- Galaxy brain this, decision like making. They looked into the future and they were like, oh, 2021 is going to be the worst year for GPU availability ever. Let's make all these decisions to, you know, fix that. Uh, you know, they can't just go to Global Foundries and be like, hey, give me another, you know, 20,000, 200,000 wafers. Because uh, they can't. So, but I think a lot of these discussions, at least for me, are relevant for what these companies can do next time this happens mm-hmm. and in the future as we sort of continue to see supply issues. And, you know, we talk about supply booked up until 2024. It's like, yeah, keep booking that out. Like, keep booking out old <laughs> nodes on these, you know, yeah. companies for as long as you possibly can because you never, like those products, you may still need them around. And then, you know, if you don't need them around, you can sell your capacity. And I think that's with, when you've got these companies that have just ridiculous amounts of money, maybe not AMD, but certainly, you know, NVIDIA, Intel, loads of money, um, doing those sorts of strategies is going to be much more relevant as we move forward into situations where potentially we continue to see mining being an issue, continuing to see gaming being at the highest levels of participation ever. Mm-hmm. So having strategies where you don't just retire your old products straight away when the new generation comes out, you continue to sell them even without, yeah, I don't think, yeah, producing new dyes or re-engineering old, re-engineering and, you know, backporting like Intel did with uh, Rocket Lake and stuff like that. I don't think that's required. Just selling the old products. If you can't buy anything, the old products are still available. I think that would still be a success. Well, so in terms of learning from past mistakes, uh, I'm probably going to do a video on this kind of leaking, like what people should expect on the 6500 XT launch. I'm not going to say all of it now because this will come out before that most likely. But what I will say is my understanding is they really are going to ship an absurd amount of Navi 24. To desktop that they it kind of sounds like they've realized they effed up and that with arc entering laptop with it's time to try to move more of these into desktop so so for people listening to this now i mean i think they're going to ship like you know more than double what the 6600 xt was at launch day at that launch and they and they do expect it to be at msrp they like truly they expect it to be at msrp for a little bit there yeah. which it was the 6600 XT in America was at MSRP at every micro center, Amazon, Newegg, in stock for hours. And I was like, yep. oh, it's just there at under 400. Yeah, same same here in Australia. It was available for about 24, 48 hours at MSRP. And then obviously... But not like 10 <laughs> seconds, two whole days yeah. that people could have bought. It. Yeah, the supply was good. The, the restocks were the main issue there. Obviously, they're going to sell out at some point, people want GPUs, people want to mm-hmm. buy something. It's always been those restocks and the ability to keep them at a low price for a significant period of time, like months. Um, that's mm-hmm. going to be the question mark with the 6500 XT. But at the same time, it's designed... The, the I don't think it's designed on purpose to be bad at mining, but 
the it, it has ended up. It's a little bit of saving money there too. Come on, guys. Yeah, very much easy. I don't think it was supposed to be like a two hundred dollar GPU when they designed it. It was meant to be a lower tier product. <laughs> it's a very very cut down product. Um, but it, as it turns out, it's not really designed in a way that's going to be conducive for mining. So that's going to give it a much greater chance of being available and at an affordable price. So it certainly has a chance of being a product that people can buy. Um, it is going to be uh, difficult, I think, for people who've been following the market for a while to reconcile that it probably is going to be like RX 580, mm-hmm. RX 590 performance at a very similar price to that card that was launched five years ago. Um, that's going to be, there's going to be a lot of memes. There's going to be a lot of thing I, I would expect around that. Um, but if it's available, that's better than nothing. You know, that's, that's really all you can say about GPUs these days. Like, is it, is, there's one question, is it available? If the answer is yes, you're probably mm-hmm. going to do okay. So let, we'll see what happens there, but I would expect it to be pretty reasonable. Yeah, and I expect the performance to be absolutely all over the place with how it, it really is yeah. something that was going to be like a 50-watt laptop card that they've <laughs> doubled the clock speed on and are going ham with on desktop. Uh, honestly, I was talking to one of my sources, and I was like, like, is there any internal like real estimation outside of those first slides they showed where this is going to be relative to a 5,500 XT. And he goes, um, on average, it'll be a bit stronger, usually maybe 10% better than a 5,500 XT. There will be times where it's like 40% better because of its absurd clock speed. And there'll be times where it loses by double digits to the previous gen. It, it, I think it's going to be a really, I what uh, something I'm planning to run within the video about it is I think this is going to be a cherry picker's dream in terms of how weak or strong the graphics card is. Because I, I really think there will be some games where it just looks hilariously powerful if it's like an older one and it doesn't use up the infinity cache. And there's going to be somewhere it's it's going to look bad, you know? Yeah, that's pretty typical of a, I don't know whether you call it a lopsided GPU design, but it is kind of... Uh, it's it's got some advantages in clock speed, and it's got a very weak memory system. So any any games that are memory limited in terms of either just capacity, you know, it's only got four gigabytes or the very low memory bus. I mean, that's going to cause some problems some of the time. I would have thought. So yeah, that I'd expect things like that happening. But again, I'm I'm very interested to see how it actually goes at ray tracing. Can it can it run? Games oh yeah, at, I wouldn't. At uh... more than Ten frames <laughs> per second. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, I mean. With these GPU launches, it's, you know, the supply stuff has been obviously a big issue and that's sort of dampened a lot of the excitement from people. But again, anything that's just even available and isn't, you know, is available at new price points, you know, the four, some $400 market has been just mm-hmm. horrific what people have been paying, like GTX 16, used GTX 1650s yeah. for like $300 US. It's like, that is such, yeah, it's just, <laughs> That, that's something I'm going to highlight in this video coming up is I understand if, no, I'm not telling a 480 per owner to get this as a performance upgrade, but I am telling you that you can apparently sell like four gigabyte ARCs 470s for over 200 on eBay right now. And that's absurd. This is stronger than your ARCs 470 by actually a good fair amount. And I think this is an important point. It's also new. Like, your 470 is going to break soon, dude. It's five years old. I just had a friend with a 480, a launch one. It broke and he had no option. And he should have got a 6600 XT and sold that for $400 or something. Like I, I, That's something I would just, it is an improvement. Again, it's like, I'm not trying to hype up a horrible product. I'm just saying 
horrible relative to what? A $300? Uh, I mean, the RX 560 in America is selling for like $170. <laughs> like if you have an old RX 560, spend 30 bucks, man, <laughs> and get this and sell your old card. Yeah, again, just supply, any sort of supply when there's a supply-constrained market, especially when it's launching into a, a market with really not that much competition at the moment. Like it's used GPUs, NVIDIA 16 series. There's a lot of room there to help adjust the current price to performance ratio in that market. It's obviously been very inflated because only high-end cards have been available and that's pushed up all the pricing of the low-end stuff. New mm-hmm. low-end cards should help there to some degree. We just have to assess what level um, that's going to help. So I'm keen to check that out. This piece of content is brought to you by Vite Ramen. For 2022, give yourself the gift of an easy-to-make-at-home meal that's healthy, reasonably priced, and above all else, actually tasty so that you actually do eat a healthy meal. I eat it all the time, and it really tastes fantastic. It's so easy to either eat a packet by itself as a lunch, or you can put a couple of eggs in there while it's boiling, and, well, you can then have a hearty meal at the end of the day. Click the link in the description and use the offer code BROKENSILICON to save 10% off a special bundle just for Moore's Law Z fans that includes spoon, chopsticks, and more. This is a great deal for you, and it really does help the channel tremendously. Seriously, I eat it. It's good. Good. They've been supporting Moore's Law Z for months, and you buying their products supports me. And you know what? You really should try to if you want a healthy and tasty snack to start out this year and maybe get rid of some of that holiday weight. Buy Vite Ramen today. So I'm going to skip over some of these other things like 3080 Ti laptop. I don't know that I have much to say about that. We're, we're talking about GPUs now. What do you uh, expect about Intel? expect about what do you expect from intel arc what do you <laughs> there's been some recent news about it that's made it kind of funny but i don't know what do you want and what do you expect out of it this year um i don't expect much so i think going into it with a fairly open mind is going to be the way with that sort of mm. thing similar to i sort of see it very similar to intel not intel amd's first gen ryzen launch where it's such a new product category i mean obviously amd made cpus before so it's yeah but it it was such a big change big upgrade big departure from what they were doing that it's really unclear how that product was going to perform and i see intel arc being very similar obviously they've made some sort of gpus before but there's a lot of question marks about exactly how it performs and with a new gpu generation with a new architecture from a new company i think there's a lot of question marks about how it's actually going to perform in games. Uh, We're going to have a fairly good idea, I would imagine, especially close to launch, where the raw, supposed raw on paper performance, whatever you want to call it, is going to lie, especially once we start getting the, once Intel announces the specifications and and all that. They're going to show some first-party benchmarks. I'm sure they're going to paint it in in a good light. There's going to be... Which they didn't show at CES, which... Did not surprise me at all, yeah. by the way. I, I don't know what they were trying to pull saying this is a quarter one launch. Yeah, you know, they, they're going to show the, you know, we're going to see the, sh- the shade accounts, the memory subsystem. We're going to, people are going to start making some conclusions about how it's going to perform on paper. But I um, I think it's very questionable how Arc is going to perform across the thousands of games that are available. You know, Intel doesn't have mm. the long driver support in as many games as AMD and NVIDIA does. Their support's getting better, but 
it's not it's just not at the level that Nvidia and AMD have. So are there going to be situations with Arc where performance looks very competitive in, let's say, a, a modern title that you would obviously optimize for, like Fortnite or Cyberpunk or one of those games, but then you play your old favorite title from five years ago and it runs like absolute trash? Like, is that what we're going to see with Intel Arc? Mm. There's a lot of questions around that that I think is going to take a lot of investigating and people diving into all areas of performance. Like, ha- does the GPU perform well for compute applications like Premiere and those sort of things um, where NVIDIA has you know, generally been very good as well as being able to perform in gaming? You know, how does it go for that? How does it go for encoding? How does it go for you know, ray tracing performance? All those questions, I, I don't really know what to expect and I don't think we'll get a good idea until people start diving in. I think even when we see initial performance claims and all that, it's not going to give us a very good picture of the product and, you know, gaming there's so many games to try so many games to play and tr- and try out on these gpus that we're going to get a lot of i think it's going to be very interesting to say to say the least i honestly think i've had you on enough times over the past year where like you're you're more than well aware of like what i've expected forever you know like 30 70 ish performance but th- the question about that is great when is it coming out because my current peg remains beginning a quarter two. Like, let's say it's a 16 gigabyte. Let's let's give it, let's say it's a 16 gigabyte 3070 Ti that uses 250 watts. So I think that's a little optimistic, but not absurd. Um, it does ha- it does have a huge node advantage over Intel, or at least a quite a notable one. What do you think that should be priced at if its drivers are at least decent? Like, and I know that's a very hard question to answer. Yeah, so assuming everything that you said there is going to be, you know, speculating and all that, so caveat. It's there. on the optimistic yeah, end, but let's say it is. Yeah, so if it, you know, the 3070 Ti is supposedly a $600 MSRP GPU, I think what it actually sells mm-hmm. for off the top of my head would be between 1000 and 1500 on the scalper market, right? Mm-hmm. Like very easily um, would be double that price. So yeah, I think Intel's obviously going to have to balance some things there in terms of how they price it. They can't go, I don't think they could price it $800 and have, you know, there'd be some marketing issues there. But, you know, I, I, I think Intel could probably get away with a very similar MSRP to NVIDIA's products in the current market. Obviously, I don't think that would be at all true in any other sort of market. They would have to make it uh, quite a bit cheaper to get people interested in a, a new product generation. I think they were initially planning like, 450 but i don't know that they are anymore like because do they really yeah do you you think there wouldn't be a backlash if it was 600 though because they're a new entrant into the gpu space i just don't know because i'm just i'm just so used to seeing at least at least what is a vocal minority every comment section of every review or video we do even remotely talking about these things going you know but that's not the real price you know i do you think consumers would take that into consideration that 600 if you can actually buy it is still substantially better or do they expect the fake price to be better than nvidia's fake price uh well i think when it comes to the fake pricing stuff if if intel announces a price and that price is actually accurate in the real market so they say it's 600 dollars mm-hmm. or whatever you can actually go at any time and buy it for 600 dollars. your people aren't going to believe that when it when they announce it so no matter what they say at the launch it's it's going to be bad like there's i i don't think it the reaction initially is 
you know, they're, they're kind of stuck between two sort of difficult positions. Do they fake the price and make it really cheap, knowing that it's going to be more expensive and have people complain about that? Or do you set the price much higher? People compare it to the existing MSRPs. People complain about that. There's no good option there. People are going to complain. I think it, mm. it's going to depend on people waiting a month to see exactly how it actually stacks up, which is kind of like you know, it's the MSRP versus real price debate for you know an announced product. And yeah, people are going to have to sort of sit and see, sit and wait basically to see where it plays out. I don't think the MSRP is going to matter all that much. What's going to matter is, is it actually cheaper than NVIDIA GPUs? So I think for, for the real price, the real street price, the scalper price, whatever you want to call it, I think it will have to be cheaper than NVIDIA's GPUs. We already see AMD's GPUs mm. on the scalper market priced below NVIDIA's GPUs for similar performance tiers. So I think Intel mm -hmm. is going to have to be at AMD's level, if not below in terms of pricing. So it would have to be cheaper than NVIDIA. But for the MSRP, I think they could probably set it very similar to current generation NVIDIA GPUs and get away with it. I, I don't expect that whatever price they set will be the real price. I would expect it to sell for more. So yeah. But again, in, in a normal market where GPUs were available, where yeah. where you could walk into a store and buy the product, it would have to be you know sort of like a 5700 XT versus 2070 situation where the current, the current cards are $500, Intel would have to come in at, say, $400 to get people interested. I guess, yeah, the question I basically asked is, do you think people finally understand that those MSRPs are fake, that the 3050 will not cost $250? Do you get it yet? <laughs> Can you stop telling me, you know, like, you know, these cards don't price, aren't priced. That's not the real price, though, you know? Yeah. And I, I think maybe that is the truth, is people do mostly get it. Now, I am seeing those comments less and less. Yeah, I, I think they get it. I think most people, you know, you see the oh, fake MSRP price and all that. I think they get it. I think as well, NVIDIA and those companies are, like we sort of said, stuck between, especially NVIDIA and AMD when they've already got their current generation out. They're stuck in a very tricky position because the 3050 really should be priced above a 3060 Ti. Like I'm, like if you, if you, if the cards coming out and it really costs five hundred dollars, let's say, it's some sort of random guess. Mm -hmm. Most NVIDIA GPUs have been double the price, so. You know, $500 would, yeah. wouldn't be out of question. That's the price of a 3070. They can't, like, they're not going to advertise the 3070 mm -hmm. at $500, the 3060 at $330, <laughs> yeah. and then a 3050 at $500. It's just not going to happen. So I think people are sort of accepting that this generation pricing is odd. It's all over the place. It's not reflective of reality, the MSRP. It's it's not going to be the price you're paying at retail most of the time. The prices are inflated in scalpers and so on. But I think people would, again, be, I'm not 100% sure how this will go, but I would be surprised if people were as tolerant of this next generation where you know NVIDIA and AMD are coming mm. out. They can do a full pricing reset if they want. They can make the highest end card, whatever they want to price it. I think if we see the next generation come out and they're saying it's $1,000, the real price is $2,000. I don't think people would be very receptive to that at all. I think people would be fed up and just want a more accurate reflection of what they're having to pay rather than another year of, another years of sort of tiptoeing around, you know, is that real? Is it fake? Where does it yeah. come in? Yeah, I think, I think they're going to have to be more accurate. I think there is going to be a reset. I think there's and I've, I just keep hearing this from people at AMD and NVIDIA that 
They're like, the next gen's going to cost more. And it's going to have to because RAM costs twice as much right now. You know, shipping's all over the place. It depends when it comes out. You know, if this came, if like Lovelace and RDNA 3 came out in like a year and a half, who knows? Maybe shortages are completely over. But if it's even close to the shortages, I think there's just no way around it. Like, I, it's like, I understand the 3080 Ti is like $500 higher MSRP than the 3080 for... Uh, eight percent more performance i don't know somewhere around there but that's you know they're kind of just preparing you that they wish the 3080 was 900 dollars right now and it wouldn't surprise me if this rumored 3080 12 gigabyte coming was this them just resetting the 3080 price like i, I think i think that's going to start happening with that the 3090 ti but if they can actually hold pricing around there it is an improvement it's just unfortunate we've gone there but you know what i don't know like i was i just was grocery shopping today i mean i think my chicken thighs are like 30% more expensive than they were half a year ago. So some of that's just accepting reality, I actually think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, supply chain is epically screwed up at the moment. So, you know, some of that's obviously the real world cost of inflation. And some of it is, you know, the cost of actually getting and making goods and shipping them around is because mm -hmm. of all the people that are sick and all the backlogs and all that stuff is going to cause issues. So yeah, I think next generation, you know, there's it's so hard to say what they should do because it's unclear. You know, it's not just the supply side of things. Obviously, mining has significantly destroyed GPU pricing and continues to destroy it at this very moment. But, you know, if I look six months in the future, could I accurately tell you what the mining market and crypto market is doing? No, I can't. And I'd be kidding anyone who says that they can is kidding absolutely kidding themselves so be, be able to no 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 buy, buy my book <laughs> buy my book you know and take my master class i'm going to tell you everything that's going to happen perfectly yeah just listen to me there's this one weird trick it's funny how all those crypto investors always say the price is going to be higher in the future they never ever say it's going to be lower anyway i think you know it's so hard to say, it's so hard to predict into the future those sort of issues. I think the supply stuff is, is there's a more clear view into what that's going to look like in 12 months. You know, most people are saying it's still going to be an issue, and I think that's fairly accurate. But on GPU prices in particular, it's kind of been inflated more than usual because of the, the pressures of crypto as well. And if that continues for another year, then it's going to be very problematic. But I don't think they'll be able to get away with as high of a, of a price rise if crypto adjusts itself back down to a lower level or mining becomes less profitable for whatever reason. So there's a lot of question marks there. And again, I agree with you. I'm expecting a pretty substantial increase in pricing for the next generation. Like the MSRP will go up by a fair bit, but to what level? I don't know. No idea. Well, and before we move on to the final thing, I would just say, I think people need to accept that GPUs are becoming a commodity like CPUs did and then RAM did. Everyone wants one for rendering, for gaming. You can't mine on a PS5 and a Series X and they're making more than the previous gens and yet they're not in stock. So gamer demand for sure is at record levels next to mining, next to a lot of people using their GPUs for all types of encoding tasks from home now that they used to be able to do on an office computer, yeah. you know? So I, I, that's the only thing that I keep trying to say, like remind people is that to say it's just mining though, it's not, you know, it's the PS5 is not in stock. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like mining is making the GPU prices higher than they 
would be otherwise, but they still would be high. Like they still wouldn't be at MSRP level for a variety of reasons. Supply chain concerns, again, the the gaming demand is still very high. So, yeah, I think, yeah, with this sort of future pricing thing, it it could be not quite as bad as it otherwise would be if there wasn't mining. But, again, for all the demand reasons we've been talking about, I, I expect it will be higher and people, yeah, need to sort of adjust their expectations for, you know, how good is a $200 GPU going to be in the future? Are they going to be, I still expect there will be some form of $200 GPU, but mm-hmm. you know, is that going to be where you're getting bang for buck or is bang for buck now $400, $500? That, all that, all I that think stuff so. I, I think bang for buck is just is moving now to like the lower high end. And, and that's somewhat intentional and somewhat like when I heard about, like, I think um, shipping great prices, I was given on some of like AMD's cars recently from a contact, like, they're like five times what they were to the point that shipping a crate via boat now is about what air shipping was this month. Except now because of that, air shipping is also like four times what it used to be. And so you're getting to a point where a $200 card like the 6500 XT, AMD's not lying. Like it is hard for them to make a $200 card anymore, you know, yeah. and, and uh, maybe that will change. I hope so. Yeah. And I think it will eventually, but... Yeah, just supply and demand, usual market considerations there. It's nothing we haven't seen before. When there's high demand, things go up in price. You know, there's demand's going to change co- compared to different markets. And, you know, things like the gaming consoles, yeah, they're out of stock at the moment. They're in high demand, but it wouldn't be the first time that consoles are significantly cheaper than PC gaming for an acceptable level of performance. That happens basically mm. every single generation for the first couple of years, PC gaming looks like horrible value in comparison to console gaming and then it gets towards the mid to back end of the console generation and suddenly PCs are you know people talking about the, the best thing ever now the slowest things in the world so that's just you know we've seen those sort of cycles before many times and it, maybe it's a bit worse this time for a number of reasons than it has been in the past but you know it's it hasn't been the first time that GPUs and gaming has been in higher demand than it would otherwise be normally so We'll see. We'll see what happens there. Yeah, and I keep finding it funny how at the beginning of a gen, it's always PC gaming's dead, and then by the end, console gaming's dead. Yeah. It's like, no, no, I don't think so. But, um, well, then, okay, the final question here that I'll just get to to round this out. Ken Gain writes in, he says, Hello, Mr. Laws dead and Mr. Unboxed. Now that 2021 and CS are finished, what are your most, uh, what are you most optimistic for going into 2022? And I'll just throw on here, like, you know what, Zen 4, Raptor Lake, RDNA 3, Lovelace. I put a question mark there because I'm still not completely sure if Lovelace is coming out this year. I'm pretty confident in RDNA 3 still. Like of all these upcoming products, and I'm sure there's some I haven't named, like what are you most excited for? And just in general, what are you optimistic for for gaming hardware this year? Yeah, I think what I'm excited for and what I'm optimistic for are almost two different questions because I'm mm-hmm. very excited to see what the next generation of GPU performance brings, but am I optimistic about that generation being, you know, affordable, good, you know, good and all that sort of thing? Maybe I'm less optimistic than I am excited about that sort of product. So I think there's really a lot of things this year that I'm very excited for, pretty much across all product categories that I would cover or Steve would be covering on the channel. Um, CPUs, you know, very exciting, I would think, with Zen 4 coming later this year. That's something I'm keen to check out. And in the meantime, we've still got, well, I guess they did just launch, but, you know, very affordable, great value 12th gen older lake parts. So, you know, mm-hmm. getting more value parts for CPUs is going to be good. And 
I expect that to continue to be an exciting thing throughout this year. Obviously, next-gen GPUs maybe not going to be as much on the bang-for-buck affordable side, but new performance tiers available is very exciting. And you know, even things on monitors, I expect this to be one of the best years yet for HDR gaming for PCs. I think there'll finally be options mm-hmm. for people, which we haven't seen before. So I'm very excited to check out that throughout um, a lot of the year. So, yeah, but even then, I'm still optimistic that the market in general will be better this year than last year in terms of you know things being more available, maybe a bit more affordable. I mean, we've already seen that GPU prices aren't as bad as they were at the absolute worst of last year. But yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic that there will be some gains, some headroom, you know, some headway made there to improve the market and make PC building and PC gaming better than it was last year. Um, maybe that's not going to happen until much later in the year, but I'm not expecting it to be the most dire year ever. Um, so we'll see. We'll see whether I'm accurate on that. I've got no idea, just making a guess. Um, but yeah, I think this year is going to be pretty I'm exciting. sure no one will just share links to you saying that, saying Tim was wrong over and over if you're wrong, uh, right? They're always very forgiving. Yeah, it wouldn't be the first time that's happened. So <laughs> no, it's it's fine. Just speculating. You know, it's just a bit of fun. But, you know, if it, if it was bad, as bad or as worse than last year, I think some some things have probably gone wrong. So we'll see. And it kind of just, you're right, when it comes in terms of like the word optimism, not even a specific product, it is all about the shortages. I really think by the end of this year, for sure, shortages will be better. I just think in the next quarter, in for some products, it's going to get a little worse again, because it just sounds like there's just this, there's either a ton of congestion or there's not. And once that's relieved, I expect a lot of pricing to plummet in quarter three. I just... I do actually still expect shortages to be all over the place for at least another quarter here. But yeah, I just yep. can't. There's a lot of people hoarding, hoarding parts that people need, like a lot of warehouses full of parts right now that I, I keep being shown where I'm like, is there, like you already seen, we I brought it up, like Series X and PS5 scalper pricing just rocketing down all of a sudden this month. Something's going on here where, the floor is starting to fall out in some of the scalpers. So I do think it will be better by the end of the year. Yeah, and, you know, it's going to depend on the exact market segment that you're looking at as well. Like CPUs, you know, mm-hmm. they're pretty much normal at the moment. Like maybe we haven't got as many super affordable CPUs as we normally would, but you can go and buy a new Intel 12th gen part or an Intel 10th or 11th gen part that's sub $200 very easily. You can buy motherboards for that pretty easily. Obviously, DDR5 is an issue, but there are just some product categories that, you know, supply is very good, some that supply is very bad. And, you know, all we need is a couple of those product categories where supply is really bad to improve slightly and suddenly, you know, building a PC is looking much better. So, yeah, I I agree with you. I think it's probably a couple of quarters where it's not going to be amazing. You know, it's not going to, there's not going to be a switch flicked and suddenly, you know, you can build a PC and mm-hmm. MSRP straight away. But, you know, if we're not seeing incremental gains throughout the year and towards the end of the year, things being better than it was at the worst of 2021, then, yeah, there's probably been some, like, catastrophic issues going on with the supply chain and who knows. But, again, even if that doesn't happen, yeah. there's still a lot to get excited about for the actual products coming out. Like, 2021, bad for supply, bad for the market, bad for the actual products coming out. <laughs> this year... Who cares about the market? At least we're going to get some products that are going to be interesting worth talking about. Well, and I think some people were surprised they didn't tease RDNA 3, but 
I mean, I wasn't. I, I do think it's coming at the end of this year. I just think that they have zero reason to show any next-gen GPU and they can't even sell what they have now. And I think like the thing we're going to see that's going to be interesting is where they price it because I, I, I'm, I'm confident that the next-gens are going to be very powerful again. Like The question is then, all right, let's say they double performance or something. Or is it going to be 30%? Like, is it, is it going to be $900 for a 7800 XT? I don't know. I think people would accept that if that was like 30% better than a 6900 XT. They go, that's an improvement. Or are they actually going to try to get away with $1,000 for it? I think that's going to be the interesting question. But again, if you could actually buy something, you know, I don't 50% stronger than a 6900 XT for a grand, and it was that price. It's an improvement. It's it's the, it's going to be interesting to see what happens to the rest of the segments, though. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think pricing, you know, is, it always depends with pricing. You know, they can set whatever price they want, but it's always going to come down to the you know price to performance, bank for buck sort of ratios. And if you know if the product is twice as fast, but it costs eighty percent more, that may still be an improvement in price to performance, which may make it justifiable for some. Bias. Yeah, it may sound super expensive, but if it's also heaps faster, then the price is going to be justifiable. What you wouldn't want to see is a 20% improvement for a 40% increase in price. That, mm-hmm. That's the sort of movement you don't want to see. But again, it's all going to be complicated by supply. What's the current street prices for these cards? Should we be comparing the next gen pricing versus the MSRPs of the previous products or the real prices people were paying for those products? And again, we're not going to be able to answer those questions until very close to that generation when we know what the the current prices on the street are at that exact time. So, yeah, I would be surprised, though, if AMD and NVIDIA make cards that go backwards in terms of price to performance in some way. Again, what baseline metric they set for that, I'm not sure. But I'd be very surprised if, yeah, the cards were like 20% more performance for 40% higher price. I don't think that's going to happen. One thing that I'm 100% sure of is it's going to be very easy for AMD to make the 7500 XT look better than the 6500 well, XT. I think that's going to be the easiest thing they'll pull off ever. They've had five years to get that right. So they've had five years to increase price to performance in the $200 market, and they kind of haven't done it. So <laughs> they certainly... I didn't say they'd make it cheaper. Yeah, that, 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 <laughs> you know. There's that opportunity there for them to take at any moment. Any, very, they could do it any time they want. So we'll see. To be honest, what I expect is they're going to be like, it's $300 and twice as strong or something. That's what I think. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Tim. Uh, I think this was a great discussion. Uh, I guess before we close out, let me uh, let you plug yourself if anyone listening this far isn't aware yet, right? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Nothing too crazy. Just go watch some hardware unbox videos if you want to see our reviews and other analysis covering all sorts of different things. That should be a good year for for releases. So there should be lots of reviews and coverage and that sort of stuff from us diving deep into all the stuff. All right. Subscribe to Hardware Unboxed. Thanks to everybody who listened. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Have a great morning, evening, afternoon, whatever you're doing in the future, everybody. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law's Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law's Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. 
If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, Please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Anthony Greffa, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yacht, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Al-Khwari, Frederick Louds, Lynn Yee, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Harrod, Drita Full, Phil S, D31337 Antics, Jackson A. Miller, Jesse Jeskowiak, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo Kinkilo, Fatboy Deezeru, Daniel Hyde, Again PA81, Nathan Mose, Coladic, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, F7GOS, Matthew Landavazo, My Name is Nobody, Judson N, Alethros, Jensen Wang, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchek, Rentero, Matt Sukata, John Jameson, Sam Vensel, Matthew Lane, Mark Raidmaker, Jan Ratner, Chris Lakata, Michael McGee, Meyer Techrans, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Growth, 3DS Boy 08, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Sandy, Garrido, Saunderson, Joachim Hagen, Teak Autumn, Sol Connor, Michael Casa, Andrew S. C. Jitz, Aaron Keith, Gregory S. Acker, Endless Loggins, Tom San Filippo, Justice Brennan, Zutsu Taylor, Trevor Powasu, Elena Danyan, Daniel Nishball, Franco Frederick, Dan Galinowski, Ian Clifford, Axel Cisneros, Lane Perry, Joseph Caraman, Brett Summers, Blake, Danovan Russell, Noah Nokoella, Zlicky, Martin Borshegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Hulam, Patrick J.S., Justin Stables, Freddie Canos Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, Brucha, Jeremy So, Michelle Pell, Brett Summers, Eddie Del Castile, Joseph Gloria, Luis Correa, Deke, Jeezy Raman, Tyler Lindley, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Justin Gower, Caillou, Mark Kelly, Dave McCoy, Valcom Alev, Game Langer, Ronnie, DNA Tech, Michael Dean, MJB1, Maurice Courtois, Wesley Sager, Sarcastro, My Sharona, Y Truy, Roman, William W. Draper, Errath, Spamtum G. Spamtum, Henry Zhang, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Amiable Chief, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, James Anderson, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, R. Pete 
Sharma, Meet and Pork, Jimmy and G, Mads, Matthew Lazier, Benjamin Oshley, Mark Mitchell, Shield TV, Couteau, Aaron, John Wissink, Mohammed, Jean Debump, Post Media, Sean Ashmont, Daniel Dewar, Stefan Jang, JSMMH, Georgie Kastaninov, PC Beast 22, Reginald Ari, Narathiel, Ivan, Charles Russell, Hal Buma, Akarsh, Edithia, The Grid, Andrew S., Chris Rich, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. <laughs>